The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Written by Manly P. Hall. Narrated by Graham Dunlop and Russ Allen. Preface. Numerous volumes have been written as commentaries upon the secret systems of philosophy existing in the ancient world. But the ageless truths of life, like many of the Earth's greatest thinkers, have usually been clothed in shabby garments. The present work is an attempt to supply a tome worthy of those seers and sages whose thoughts are the substance of its pages. To bring about this coalescence of beauty and truth has proved most costly. But I believe that the result will produce an effect upon the mind of the reader which will more than justify the expenditure. Work upon the text of this volume was begun the first day of January 1926 and has continued almost uninterruptedly for over two years. The greater part of the research work, however, was carried on prior to the writing of the manuscript. The collection of the reference material was begun in 1921, and three years later the plans for the book took definite form. For the sake of clarity, all footnotes were eliminated, the various quotations and references to other authors being embodied in the text in their logical order. The bibliography is appended primarily to assist those interested in selecting for future study the most authoritative and important items dealing with philosophy and symbolism. To make readily accessible the abstruse information contained in the book, an elaborate topical cross-index is included. I make no claim for either the infallibility or the originality of any statement herein contained. I have studied the fragmentary writings of the ancients sufficiently to realize that dogmatic utterances concerning their tenets are worse than foolhardy. Traditionalism is the curse of modern philosophy, particularly that of the European schools. While many of the statements contained in this treatise may appear at first wildly fantastic, I have sincerely endeavored to refrain from haphazard metaphysical speculation, presenting the material as far as possible in the spirit rather than the letter of the original authors. By assuming responsibility only for the mistakes which may appear herein, I hope to escape the accusation of plagiarism which has been directed against nearly every writer on the subject of mystical philosophy. Having no particular ism of my own to promulgate, I have not attempted to twist the original writings to substantiate preconceived notions, nor have I distorted doctrines in any effort to reconcile the irreconcilable differences present in the various systems of religio-philosophic thought. The entire theory of the book is diametrically opposed to the modern method of thinking, for it is concerned with subjects openly ridiculed by the sophists of the 20th century. Its true purpose is to introduce the mind of the reader to a hypothesis of living wholly beyond the pale of materialistic theology, philosophy, or science. The mass of abstruse material between its covers is not susceptible to perfect organization, but so far as possible related topics have been grouped together. Rich as the English language is in media of expression, it is curiously lacking in terms suitable to the conveyance of abstract philosophical premises. A certain intuitive grasp of the subtler meanings concealed within groups of inadequate words is necessary, therefore to an understanding of the ancient mystery teachings. Although the majority of the items in the bibliography are in my own library, I wish to acknowledge gratefully the assistance rendered by the public libraries of San Francisco and Los Angeles, the libraries of the Scottish Rite in San Francisco and Los Angeles, 
the libraries of the University of California in Berkeley and Los Angeles, the Mechanics Library in San Francisco, and the Cortona Theosophical Library at Ojai, California. Special recognition for their help is also due to the following persons. Mrs. Max Heindahl, Mrs. Alice Palmer Henderson, Mr. Ernest Dawson and staff, Mr. John Howell, Mr. Paul Elder, Mr. Philip Watson Hackett, and Mr. John R. Ruxdell. Single books were lent by other persons and organizations to whom thanks are also given. The matter of translation was the greatest single task in the research work incident to the preparation of this volume. The necessary German translations, which required nearly three years, were generously undertaken by Mr. Alfred Berry, who declined all remuneration for his labor. The Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish translations were made by Professor Homer P. Earle. The Hebrew text was edited by Rabbi Jacob M. Alco. Miscellaneous short translations and checking also were done by various individuals. The editorial work was under the supervision of Dr. C.B. Rowlingson, through whose able efforts literary order was often brought out of literary chaos. Special recognition is also due to the services rendered by Mr. Robert B. Tummins of the staff of H.S. Crocker Company, Inc., to whom were assigned the technical difficulties of fitting the text matter into its allotted space. For much of the literary charm of the work, I am also indebted to Mr. M. M. Saxton, to whom the entire manuscript was first dedicated and to whom was also entrusted the preparation of the index. The splendid efforts of Mr. J. Augustus Knapp, the illustrator, have resulted in a series of color plates which add materially to the beauty and completeness of the work. Q, the printing of the book, was in the hands of Mr. Frederick E. Keast of H.S. Crocker Company, Inc., whose great personal interest in the volume has been manifested by an untiring effort to improve the quality thereof through the gracious cooperation of Dr. John Henry Nash, the foremost designer of printing on the American continent. The book appears in a unique and appropriate form, embodying the finest elements of the printer's craft. An increase in the number of plates and also a finer quality of workmanship than was first contemplated have been made possible by Mr. C. E. Benson of the Los Angeles Engraving Company, who entered heart and soul into the production of this volume. The pre-publication sale of this book has been without known precedent in book history. The subscription list for the first edition of 550 copies was entirely closed a year before the manuscript was placed in the printer's hands. The second, or King Solomon edition, consisting of 550 copies, and the third, or Theosophical edition, consisting of 200 copies, were sold before the finished volume was received from the printer. For so ambitious a production, this constitutes a unique achievement. The credit for this extraordinary sales program belongs to Mrs. Maud F. Gallagher, who had as her ideal not to sell the book in the commercial sense of the word, but to place it in the hands of those particularly interested in the subject matter it contains. Valuable assistance in this respect was also rendered by numerous friends who had attended my lectures and who, without compensation, undertook and successfully accomplished the distribution of the book. In conclusion, the author wishes to acknowledge gratefully his indebtedness to each one of the hundreds of subscribers through whose advance payments the publication of this folio was made possible. To undertake the enormous expense involved was entirely beyond his individual means, and those who invested in the volume had no assurance of its production and no security other than their faith in the integrity of the writer. 
I sincerely hope that each reader will profit from the perusal of this book, even as I have profited from the writing of it. The years of labor and thought expended upon it have meant much to me. The research work discovered to me many great truths. The writing of it discovered to me the laws of order and patience. The printing of it discovered to me new wonders of the arts and crafts. And the whole expertise has discovered to me a multitude of friends whom otherwise I might never have known. And so, in the words of John Bunyan, I penned it down until at last it came to be, for length and breadth the bigness which you see. Manley P. Hall, Los Angeles, California, May 28, 1928. Introduction Philosophy is the science of estimating values. The superiority of any state or substance over another is determined by philosophy. By assigning a position of primary importance to what remains when all that is secondary has been removed, philosophy thus becomes the true index of priority, or emphasis in the realm of speculative thought. The mission of philosophy a priori is to establish the relation of manifested things to their invisible ultimate cause or nature. Philosophy, writes Sir William Hamilton, has been defined as the science of things divine and human, and of the causes in which they are contained. Cicero. The science of effects by their causes. Hobbes. The science of sufficient reasons. Leibniz. The science of things possible inasmuch as they are possible. Wolfe. The science of things evidently deduced from first principles. Descartes. The science of truths, sensible and abstract, the condiac, the application of reason to its legitimate objects, tenement, the science of the relations of all knowledge to the necessary ends of human reason, Kant, the science of the original form of the ego or mental self, Krug, the science of sciences, Fichte, the science of the absolute, von Schelling. The science of the absolute indifference of the ideal and real, von Schelling. Or, the identity of identity and non-identity, Hegel. See lectures on metaphysics and logic. The six headings under which the disciplines of philosophy are commonly classified are metaphysics, which deals with such abstract subjects as cosmology, theology, and the nature of being, Logic, which deals with the laws governing rational thinking, or, as it has been called, the doctrine of fallacies. Ethics, which is the science of morality, individual responsibility, and character, concerned chiefly with an effort to determine the nature of good. Psychology, which is devoted to an investigation and classification of those forms of phenomena referable to a mental origin. Epistemology which is the science concerned primarily with the nature of knowledge itself and the question of whether it may exist in an absolute form. And aesthetics, which is the science of the nature and of the reactions awakened by the beautiful, the harmonious, the elegant, and the noble. Plato regarded philosophy as the greatest good ever imparted by divinity to man. In the 20th century, however, it has become a ponderous and complicated structure of arbitrary and irreconcilable notions yet each substantiated by almost incontestable logic. The lofty theorems of the old academy, which Iamblichus likened to the nectar and ambrosia of the gods, have been so adulterated by opinion, which Heraclitus declared to be a falling sickness of the mind, 
that the heavenly mead would now be quite unrecognizable to this great Neoplatonist. Convincing evidence of the increasing superficiality of modern scientific and philosophic thought is its persistent drift towards materialism. When the great astronomer Laplace was asked by Napoleon why he had not mentioned God in his Traite de la Mécanique Celeste, the mathematician naively replied, Sire, I have no need for that hypothesis. In his treatise on atheism, Sir Francis Bacon tersely summarizes the situation thus, A little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. The metaphysics of Aristotle opens with these words, All men naturally desire to know. To satisfy this common urge, the unfolding human intellect has explored the extremities of imaginable space without the extremities of imaginable self within, seeking to estimate the relationship between the one and the all, the effect and the cause, nature and the groundwork of nature, the mind and the source of the mind, the spirit and the substance of the spirit, the illusion and the reality. An ancient philosopher once said, he who has not even a knowledge of common things is a brute among men. He who has an accurate knowledge of human concerns alone is a man among brutes. But he who knows all that can be known by intellectual energy is a god among men. Man's status in the natural world is determined, therefore, by the quality of his thinking. He whose mind is enslaved to his bestial instincts is philosophically not superior to the brute. He whose rational faculties ponder human affairs is a man, and he whose intellect is elevated to the consideration of divine realities is already a demigod, for his being partakes of the luminosity with which his reason has brought him into proximity. In his Ecumenium of the Science of Sciences, Cicero is led to exclaim, O philosophy, life's guide, O searcher, out of virtue and expeller of vices! What could we and every age of men have been without thee? Thou hast produced cities, thou hast called men scattered about into the social enjoyment of life. In this age, the word philosophy has little meaning unless accompanied by some other qualifying term. The body of philosophy has been broken up into numerous isms more or less antagonistic, which have become so concerned with the effort to disprove each other's fallacies that the sublimer issues of divine order and human destiny have suffered deplorable neglect. The ideal function of philosophy is to serve as the stabilizing influence in human thought. By virtue of its intrinsic nature, it should prevent man from ever establishing unreasonable codes of life. Philosophers themselves, however, have frustrated the ends of philosophy by exceeding in their wool-gathering those untrained minds whom they are supposed to lead in the straight and narrow path of rational thinking. To list and classify any but the more important of the now-recognized schools of philosophy is beyond the space limitations of this volume. The vast area of speculation covered by philosophy will be appreciated best after a brief consideration of a few of the outstanding systems of philosophic discipline which have swayed the world of thought during the last 26 centuries. The Greek school of philosophy had its inception with the seven immortalized thinkers upon whom was first conferred the appellation of Sophos, the wise. According to Diogenes Laertius, these were Thales, Solon, Chilon, Pittacus, Bias, Cleobulus, and Periander. 
Water was conceived by Thales to be the primal principle or element upon which the earth floated like a ship and earthquakes were the result of disturbances in this universal sea. Since Thales was an Ionian, the school perpetrating his tenets became known as the Ionic. He died in 546 BC and was succeeded by Anaximander, who in turn was followed by Anaximenes, Anaxagoras, and Archelaus, with whom the Ionic school ended. Anaximander, differing from his master Thales, declared measureless and indefinable infinity to be the principle from which all things were generated. Anaximenes asserted error to be the first element of the universe, that souls and even the deity itself were composed of it. Anaxagoras, whose doctrine savors of atomism, held God to be an infinite, self-moving mind, that this divine, infinite mind, not enclosed in any body, is the efficient cause of all things, out of the infinite matter consisting of similar parts, everything being made according to its species by the divine mind, who when all things were at first confusedly mingled together, came and reduced them to order. Archelaus declared the principle of all things to be twofold, mind, which was incorporeal, and air, which was corporeal. The rarefaction and condensation of the latter resulting in fire and water, respectively. The stars were conceived by Archelaus to be burning iron places. Heraclitus, who lived 536-470 BC and is sometimes included in the Ionic school, in his doctrine of change and eternal flux asserted fire to be the first element, and also the state into which the world would ultimately be reabsorbed. The soul of the world he regarded as an exhalation from its humid parts, and he declared the ebb and flow of the sea to be caused by the sun. After Pythagoras of Samos, its founder, the Italic or Pythagorean school, numbers among its most distinguished representatives, Empedocles, Epicarmus, Archytas, Alcmion, Hippasus, Philalus, and Eudoxus. Pythagoras, 580-500 BC, conceived mathematics to be the most sacred and exact of all sciences, and demanded all of who came to him for a study of familiarity with arithmetic, music, astronomy, and geometry. He laid special emphasis upon the philosophic life as a prerequisite to wisdom. Pythagoras was one of the first teachers to establish a community wherein all the members were of mutual assistance to one another in the common attainment of the higher sciences. He also introduced the discipline of retrospection as essential to the development of the spiritual mind. Pythagoreanism may be summarized as a system of metaphysical speculation concerning the relationships between numbers and the causal agencies of existence. This school also first expounded the theory of celestial harmonics, or the music of the spheres. John Roycklin said of Pythagoras that he taught nothing to his disciples before the discipline of silence, silence being the first rudiment of contemplation. In his Sophists, Aristotle credits Empedocles with the discovery of rhetoric. Both Pythagoras and Empedocles accepted the theory of transmigration, the latter saying, A boy I was, then did a maid become. A plant, bird, fish, and in the vast sea swum. Archytas is credited with invention of the screw and the crane. Pleasure, he declared, to be a pestilence because it was opposed to the temperance of the mind. He considered a man without deceit to be as rare as a fish without bones. The Elatic sect was founded by Xenophanes, 570 to 480 BC, 
who is conspicuous for his attacks upon the cosmologic and theogonic fables of Homer and Hesiod. Xenophanes declared that God was one and incorporeal, in substance and figure round, in no way resembling man, that he is all sight and all hearing, but breathes not, that he is all things, the mind and wisdom, not generate but eternal, impassable, immutable, and rational. Xenophanes believed that all existing things were eternal, that the world was without beginning or end, and that everything which was generated was subject to corruption. He lived to a great age and is said to have buried his sons with his own hands. Parmenides studied under Xenophanes but never entirely subscribed to his doctrines. Parmenides declared the senses to be uncertain and reason the only criterion of truth. He first asserted the earth to be round and also divided its surface into zones of heat and cold. Melissus, who is included in the Elatic school, held many opinions in common with Parmenides. He declared the universe to be immovable because, occupying all space, there was no place to which it could be moved. He further rejected the theory of a vacuum in space. Zeno of Elia also maintained that a vacuum could not exist. Rejecting the theory of motion, he asserted that there was but one God, who was an eternal, ungenerated being. Like Xenophanes, he conceived deity to be spherical in shape. Lucipus held the universe to consist of two parts, one full and the other a vacuum. From the infinite, a host of minute fragmentary bodies descended into the vacuum, where through continual agitation they organized themselves into spheres of substance. The great Democritus, to a certain degree enlarged upon the atomic theory of Lucipus, Democritus declared the principles of all things to be twofold, atoms and vacuum. Both, he asserted, are infinite, atoms in number, vacuum in magnitude. Thus all bodies must be composed of atoms or vacuum. Atoms possess two properties, form and size, both characterized by infinite variety. The soul Democritus also conceived to be atomic in structure and subject to dissolution with the body. The mind, he believed, to be composed of spiritual atoms. Aristotle intimates that Democritus obtained his atomic theory from the Pythagorean doctrine of the monad. Among the Eleatics are also included Protagoras and Anarchus. Socrates, 469-399 BC, the founder of the Socratic sect, being fundamentally a skeptic, did not force his opinions upon others but through the medium of questionings caused each man to give expression to his own philosophy. According to Plutarch, Socrates conceived every place as appropriate for reaching in that whole world was a school of virtue. He held that the soul existed before the body and prior to immersion therein was endowed with all knowledge, that when the soul entered into the material form it became stupefied, but that by discourses upon sensible objects it was caused to reawaken and to recover its original knowledge, on these premises was based his attempt to stimulate the soul power through irony and inductive reasoning. It has been said of Socrates that the sole subject of his philosophy was man. He himself declared philosophy to be the way of true happiness and its purpose twofold. One, to contemplate God, and two, to abstract the soul from corporeal sense. The principles of all things he conceived to be three in number, God, matter, and ideas. Of God, he said, what he is I know not, what he is not I know. 
matter he defined as the subject of generation and corruption, idea as an incorruptible substance, the intellect of God. Wisdom he considered the sum of the virtues. Among the prominent members of the Socratic sect were Xenophon, Aeschines, Crito, Simon, Glucca, Simeus, and Cebes. Professor Zeller, the great authority on ancient philosophies, has recently declared the writings of Xenophon relating to Socrates to be forgeries. When the Clouds of Aristophanes, a comedy written to ridicule the theories of Socrates, was first presented, the great skeptic himself attended the play. During the performance, which caricatured him seated in a basket high in the air studying the sun, Socrates rose calmly in his seat, the better to enable the Athenian spectators to compare his own unprepossessing features with the grotesque mask worn by the actor impersonating him. The Elean sect was founded by Phaedo Avilas, a youth of noble family who was bought from slavery at the instigation of Socrates and who became his devoted disciple. Plato so highly admired Phaedo's mentality that he named one of the most famous of his discourses the Phaedo. Phaedo was succeeded in his school by Plisthenes, who in turn was followed by Menedemus. Of the doctrines of the Elean sect, little is known. Menedemus is presumed to have been inclined toward the teachings of Stilpo and the Megarian sect. When Menedemus's opinions were demanded, he answered that he was free, thus intimating that most men were enslaved to their opinions. Menedemus was apparently of somewhat belligerent temperament and often returned from his lectures in a badly bruised condition. That which is not the same is different from that with which it is not the same. This point being admitted, Menedemus continued, to benefit is not the same as good, therefore good does not benefit. After the time of Menedemus, the Elean sect became known as the Eritrean. Its exponents denounced all negative propositions and all complex and abstruse theories, declaring that only affirmative and simple doctrines could be true. The Megarian sect was founded by Euclid of Megara, not the celebrated mathematician, a great admirer of Socrates. The Athenians passed a law decreeing death to any citizen of Megara found in the city of Athens. Nothing daunted, Euclid donned woman's clothing and went at night to study with Socrates. After the cruel death of their teacher, the disciples of Socrates, fearing a similar fate, fled to Megara, where they were entertained with great honor by Euclid. The Megarian school accepted the Socratic doctrine that virtue is wisdom adding it to the elatic concept that goodness is absolute unity and all change and illusion of the senses. Euclid maintained that good has no opposite and therefore evil does not exist. Being asked about the nature of the gods, he declared himself ignorant of their disposition, save that they hated curious persons. The Megarians are occasionally included among the dialectic philosophers. Euclid, who died 374 B.C., was succeeded in his school by Eubelides, among whose disciples were Alexinus and Apollonius Cronus. Euphantus, who lived to great age and wrote many tragedies, was among the foremost followers of Eubelides. Diodorus is usually included in the Megarian school, having heard Eubelides' lecture. According to legend, Diodorus died of grief because he could not answer instantly certain questions asked him by Stilpo at one time master of the Megarian school. 
Diodorus held that nothing could be moved, since to be moved it must be taken out of the place in which it is and put into the place where it is not, which is impossible because all things must always be in the places where they are. The Cynics were a sect founded by Antisthenes of Athens, 444 to 365 BC, a disciple of Socrates. Their doctrine may be described as an extreme individualism, which considers man as existing for himself alone and advocates surrounding him by inharmony, suffering, and direst need that be may thereby be driven to retire more completely into his own nature. The Cynics renounced all worldly possessions, living in the rudest shelters and subsisting upon the coarsest and simplest food. On the assumption that the gods wanted nothing, the Cynics affirmed that those whose needs were fewest consequently approached closest to the divinities. Being asked what he gained by a life of philosophy, Antisthenes replied that he had learned how to converse with himself. Diogenes of Sinopis is remembered chiefly for the tub in the metrum, which for many years served him as a home. The people of Athens loved the beggar philosopher, and when a youth in jest bored holes in the tub, the city presented Diogenes with a new one and punished the youth. Diogenes believed that nothing in life can be rightly accomplished without exercitation. He maintained that everything in the world belongs to the wise, a declaration which he proved by the following logic. All things belong to the gods. The gods are friends to wise persons. All things are common amongst friends. Therefore, all things belong to the wise. Among the cynics are Monimus, Onocritus, Crates, Metrocles, Hipparchia, who married Crates, Menippus, and Menedemus. The Cyrenaic sect, founded by Aristippus of Cyrene, 435 to 356 BC, promulgated the doctrine of hedonism. Learning of the fame of Socrates, Aristippus journeyed to Athens and applied himself to the teachings of the great skeptic. Socrates, pained by the voluptuous and mercenary tendencies of Aristippus, vainly labored to reform the young man. Aristippus had the distinction of being consistent in principle and practice, for he lived in perfect harmony with his philosophy that the quest of pleasure was the chief purpose of life. The doctrines of the Cyrenaics may be summarized thus. All that is actually known concerning any object or condition is the feeling which it awakens in man's own nature. In the sphere of ethics, that which awakens the most pleasant feeling is consequently to be esteemed as the greatest good. Emotional reactions are classified as pleasant or gentle, harsh and mean. The end of pleasant emotion is pleasure. The end of harsh emotion, grief. The end of mean emotion, nothing. Through mental perversity, some men do not desire pleasure. In reality, however, pleasure, especially of a physical nature, is the true end of existence and exceeds in every way mental and spiritual enjoyments. Pleasure, furthermore, is limited wholly to the moment. Now is the only time. The past cannot be regarded without regret and the future cannot be faced without misgiving. Therefore, neither is conducive to pleasure. No man should grieve, for grief is the most serious of all diseases. Nature permits man to do anything he desires. He is limited only by his own laws and customs. A philosopher is one free from envy, love, and superstition, and whose days are one long round of pleasure.
Indulgence was thus elevated by Aristippus to the chief position among the virtues. He further declared philosophers to differ markedly from other men and that they alone would not change the order of their lives if all the laws of men were abolished. Among prominent philosophers influenced by the Cyrenaic doctrines was Agasius, Anasiris, Theodorus, and Bion. The sect of the academic philosophers instituted by Plato, 427 to 347 BC, was divided into three major parts the Old, the Middle, and the New Academy. Among the old academics were Susipus, Xenocrates, Pullman, Crates, and Cranter. Arcelaus instituted the Middle Academy, and Carnades founded the New. Chief among the masters of Plato was Socrates. Plato traveled widely and was initiated by the Egyptians into the profundities of Hermetic philosophy. He also derived much from the doctrines of the Pythagoreans. Cicero describes the threefold constitution of Platonic philosophy as compromising ethics, physics, and dialectics. Plato defined good as threefold in character. Good in the soul, expressed through the virtues. Good in the body, expressed through the symmetry and endurance of the parts. And good in the external world, expressed through social position and companionship. In the book of Susippus on Platonic definitions, the great Platonist thus defines God a being that lives immortally by means of himself alone, sufficing for his own blessedness, the eternal essence, cause of his own goodness. According to Plato, the one is the term most suitable for defining the absolute, since the whole precedes the parts, and diversity is dependent on unity, but unity not on diversity. The one, moreover, is before being, for to be is an attribute or condition of the one. Platonic philosophy is based upon the postulation of three orders of being, that which moves unmoved, that which is self-moved, and that which is moved. That which is immovable but moves is anterior to that which is self-moved, which likewise is anterior to that which it moves. That in which motion is inherent cannot be separated from its motive power. It is therefore incapable of dissolution. Of such nature are the immortals. That which has motion imparted to it from another can be separated from the source of its an animating principle. It is therefore subject to dissolution. Of such nature are mortal beings. Superior to both the mortals and the immortals is that condition which continually moves yet itself is unmoved. To this constitution the power of abidance is inherent. It is therefore the divine permanence upon which all things are established. Being nobler even than self-motion, the unmoved mover is the first of all the dignities. The Platonic discipline was founded upon the theory that learning is really reminiscence, or the bringing into objectivity of knowledge, formerly required by the soul in a previous state of existence. At the entrance of the Platonic school in the academy were written the words, Let none ignorant of geometry enter here. After the death of Plato, his disciples separated into two groups. One, the academics, continued to meet in the academy where once he had presided. The other, the peripatetics, removed to the Lyceum under the leadership of Aristotle, 384-322 BC. Plato recognized Aristotle as his greatest disciple, and according to Philipponus, referred to him as the mind of the school. If Aristotle were absent from the lectures, Plato would say, the intellect is not here, 
of the prodigious genius of Aristotle, Thomas Taylor writes in his introduction to the metaphysics, when we consider that he was not only well acquainted with every science, as his works abundantly evince, but that he wrote on almost every subject which is comprehended in the circle of human knowledge, and this with matchless accuracy and skill, we know not which to admire most, the penetration or extent of his mind. Of the philosophy of Aristotle, the same author says, the end of Aristotle's moral philosophy is perfection through the virtues, and the end of his contemplative philosophy and union with the one principle of all things. Aristotle conceived philosophy to be twofold, practical and theoretical. Practical philosophy embraced ethics and politics. Theoretical philosophy, physics and logic. Metaphysics he considered to be the science concerning that substance which has the principle of motion and rest inherent to itself. To Aristotle, the soul is that by which man first lives, feels, and understands. Hence, to the soul he assigned three faculties, nutritive, sensitive, and intellective. He further considered the soul to be twofold, rational and irrational, and in some particulars elevated the sense perceptions above the mind. Aristotle defined wisdom as the science of first causes. The four major divisions of his philosophy are dialectics, physics, ethics, and metaphysics. God is defined as the first mover, the best of beings, an immovable substance, separate from sensible things, void of corporeal quantity, without parts and indivisible. Platonism is based upon a priori reasoning. Aristotelianism upon a posteriori reasoning. Aristotle taught his pupil Alexander the Great to feel if he had not done a good deed, he had not reigned that day. Among his followers were Theophrastus, Strato, Lyco, Aristo, Critolaus, and Diodorus. Of skepticism, as propounded by Pyro of Elis, 365 to 275 BC, and by Timon, Sextus, Empiricus, said that those who seek must find or deny they have found or can find or persevere in the inquiry. Those who suppose they have found truth are called dogmatists. Those who think it incomprehensible are the academics. Those who still seek are the skeptics. The attitude of skepticism towards the knowable is summed up by Sextus Empiricus in the following words. But the chief ground of skepticism is that to every reason there is an opposite reason equivalent, which makes us forbear to dogmatize. The skeptics were strongly opposed to the dogmatists and were agnostic in that they held the accepted theories regarding deity to be self-contradictory and undemonstrable. How, asked the skeptic, can we have indubitate knowledge of God, knowing not his substance, form, or place? For while philosophers disagree irreconcilably on these points, their conclusions cannot be considered as undoubtedly true. Since absolute knowledge was considered unattainable, the skeptics declared the end of their discipline to be in opinionatives, in disturbance, in impulsives, moderation, and in disquietives, suspension. The sect of the Stoics was founded by Zeno, 340 to 265 BC. The Cetian, who studied under Crates, the Cynic, from which sect the Stoics had their origin. Zeno was succeeded by Cleanthes, Chrysippus, Zeno of Tarsus, Diogenes, Antipater, Panaceus, and Poseidonius. 
most famous of the Roman Stoics are Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. The Stoics were essentially pantheists, since they maintain that as there is nothing better than the world, the world is God. Zeno declared that the reason of the world is diffused throughout it as a seed. Stoicism is a materialistic philosophy enjoining voluntary resignation to natural law. Chrysippus maintained that good and evil being contrary, both are necessary since each sustains the other. The soul was regarded as a body distributed throughout the physical form and subject to dissolution with it. Though some of the Stoics held that wisdom prolonged the existence of the soul, actual immortality is not included in their tenets. The soul was said to be composed of eight parts, the five senses, the generative power, the vocal power, and an eighth or hegemonic part. Nature was defined as God mixed throughout the substance of the world. All things were looked upon as bodies, either corporeal or incorporeal. Meekness marked the attitude of the Stoic philosopher. While Diogenes was delivering a discourse against anger, one of his listeners spat contemptuously in his face. Receiving the insult with humility, the great Stoic was moved to retort, I am not angry, but I am in doubt whether I ought to be so or not. Epicurus of Samos, 341-270 BC, was the founder of the Epicurean sect, which in many respects resembles the Cyrenaic, but is higher in its ethical standards. The Epicureans also posited pleasure as the most desirable state, but conceived it to be a grave and dignified state achieved through renunciation of those mental and emotional inconstancies which are productive of pain and sorrow. Epicurus held that as the pains of the mind and soul are more grievous than those of the body, so the joys of the mind and soul exceed those of the body. The Cyrenaics asserted pleasure to be dependent upon action or motion. The Epicureans claimed rest or lack of action to be equally productive of pleasure. Epicurus accepted the philosophy of Democritus concerning the nature of atoms and based his physics upon this theory. The Epicurean philosophy may be summed up in four canons. 1. Sense is never deceived, and therefore every sensation and every perception of an appearance is true. 2. Opinion follows upon sense and is superadded to sensation, and capable of truth or falsehood. 3. All opinion attested or not contradicted by the evidence of sense is true. 4. An opinion contradicted or not attested by the evidence of sense is false. Among the Epicureans of note were Metrodorus of Lampsacus, Zeno of Sidon, and Phaedrus. Eclecticism may be defined as the practice of choosing apparently irreconcilable doctrines from antagonistic schools and constructing therefrom a composite philosophic system in harmony with the convictions of the eclectic himself. Eclecticism can scarcely be considered philosophically or logically sound. For as individual schools arrive at their conclusions by different methods of reasoning, so the philosophic product of fragments from these schools must necessarily be built upon the foundation of conflicting premises. Eclecticism, accordingly, has been designated the layman's cult. In the Roman Empire, little thought was devoted to philosophic theory. Consequently, most of its thinkers were of the eclectic type. Cicero is the outstanding example of early eclecticism, for his writings are a veritable potpourri of invaluable fragments from earlier schools of thought. 
Eclecticism appears to have had its inception at the moment when men first doubted the possibility of discovering ultimate truth. Observing all so-called knowledge to be mere opinion at best, the less studious furthermore concluded that the wiser course to pursue was to accept that which appeared to be most reasonable of the teachings of any school or individual. From this practice, however, arose a pseudo-broad-mindedness devoid of the elements of preciseness found in true logic and philosophy. The Neo-Pythagorean school flourished in Alexandria during the first century of the Christian era. Only two names stand out in connection with it, Apollonius of Tyana and Moderatus of Gades. Neo-Pythagoreanism is a link between the older pagan philosophies and Neoplatonism. Like the former, it contained many exact elements of thought derived from Pythagoras and Plato. Like the latter, it emphasized metaphysical speculation and ascetic habits. A striking similarity has been observed by several authors between Neo-Pythagoreanism and the doctrines of the Essenes. Special emphasis was laid upon the mystery of numbers, and it is possible that the Neo-Pythagoreans had a far wider knowledge of the true teachings of Pythagoras than is available today. Even in the first century, Pythagoras was regarded more as a god than a man, and the revival of his philosophy was resorted to apparently, in the hope that his name would stimulate interest in the deeper systems of learning. But Greek philosophy has passed the zenith of its splendor. The mass of humanity was awakening to the importance of physical life and physical phenomena. The emphasis upon earthly affairs, which began to assert itself later, reached maturity of expression in 20th century materialism and commercialism. Even though Neoplatonism was to intervene and many centuries passed before this emphasis took definite form. Although Ammonius Saccus was believed to be the founder of Neoplatonism, the school had its true beginning in Plotinus, AD 204 to 269. Prominent among the Neoplatonists of Alexandria, Syria, Rome, and Athens were Porphyry, Iamblichus, Celestius, the Emperor Julian, Plutarch, and Proclus. Neoplatonism was the supreme effort of decadent pagandom to publish and thus preserve for posterity its secret, or unwritten, doctrine. In its teachings, ancient idealism found its most perfect expression. Neoplatonism was concerned almost exclusively with the problems of higher metaphysics. It recognized the existence of a secret and all-important doctrine, which from the time of the earliest civilizations had been concealed within the rituals, symbols, and allegories of religions and philosophies. To the mind unacquainted with its fundamental tenets, Neoplatonism may appear to be a mass of speculations interspersed with extravagant flights of fancy. Such a viewpoint, however, ignores the institutions of the mysteries, those secret schools into whose profundities of idealism nearly all of the first philosophers of antiquity were initiated. When the physical body of pagan thought collapsed, an attempt was made to resurrect the form by instilling new life into it, by the unveiling of its mystical truths. This effort apparently was barren of results. Despite the antagonism, however, between pristine Christianity and Neoplatonism, Many basic tenets of the latter were accepted by the former and woven into the fabric of patristic philosophy. Briefly described, Neoplatonism is a philosophic code which conceives every physical or concrete body of doctrine to be merely the shell of a spiritual verity, which may be discovered through meditation and certain exercises of a mystic nature. 
in comparison to the esoteric spiritual truths which they contain, the corporeal bodies of religion and philosophy were considered relatively of little value. Likewise, no emphasis was placed upon the material sciences. The term patristic is employed to designate the philosophy of the fathers of the early Christian church. Patristic philosophy is divided into two general epochs, Antinicene and Post-Nicene. The Antinicene period, in the main, was devoted to attacks upon paganism and to apologies and defenses of Christianity. The entire structure of pagan philosophy was assailed and the dictates of faith elevated above those of reason. In some instances, efforts were made to reconcile the evident truths of paganism with Christian revelation. Eminent among the Antinicene fathers were St. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Justin Martyr. In the post-Nicene period, more emphasis was placed upon the unfoldment of Christian philosophy along Platonic and Neoplatonic lines, resulting in the appearance of many strange documents of a lengthy, rambling, and ambiguous nature nearly all of which were philosophically unsound. The post-Nicene philosophers included Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, and Cyril of Alexandria. The patristic school is notable for its emphasis upon the supremacy of man throughout the universe. Man was conceived to be a separate and divine creation, the crowning achievement of deity and an exception to the suzerainty of natural law. To the patristics, it was inconceivable that there should ever exist another creature so noble, so fortunate, or so able as man, for whose sole benefit and edification all the kingdoms of nature were primarily created. Patristic philosophy culminated in Augustinianism, which may be best defined as Christian Platonism. Opposing the Pelagian doctrine that man is the author of his own salvation, Augustinianism elevated the Church and its dogmas to a position of absolute infallibility, a position which it successfully maintained until the Reformation. Gnosticism, a system of emanationism interpreting Christianity in terms of Greek, Egyptian, and Persian metaphysics, appeared in the latter part of the first century of the Christian era. Practically all the information extant regarding the Gnostics and their doctrines stigmatized as heresy by the anti-Nicene Church Fathers, is derived from the accusations made against them, particularly from the writings of St. Irenaeus. In the 3rd century appeared Manichaeism, a dualistic system of Persian origin, which taught that good and evil were forever contending for universal supremacy. In Manichaeism, Christ is conceived to be the principle of redeeming good, in contradistinction to the man-Jesus who was viewed as an evil personality. The death of Boethius in the 6th century marked the close of the ancient Greek school of philosophy. The 9th century saw the rise of the new school of scholasticism, which sought to reconcile philosophy with theology. Representative of the main divisions of the scholastic school were the eclecticism of John of Salisbury, the mysticism of Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Bonaventura, the rationalism of Peter Abelard, and the pantheistic mysticism of Meister Eckhart. Among the Arabian Aristotelians were Avicenna and Averroes. The zenith of scholasticism was reached with the advent of Albertus Magnus and his illustrious disciple St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomism, the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, sometimes referred as the Christian Aristotle, sought to reconcile the various factions of the scholastic school. Thomism was basically Aristotelian with the added concept that faith is a projection of reason. 
Scotism, or the doctrine of voluntarism, promulgated by Johann Duns Scotus, a Franciscan scholastic, emphasized the power and efficacy of the individual will as opposed to Thomism. The outstanding characteristic of scholasticism was its frantic effort to cast all European thought in an Aristotelian mold. Eventually, the schoolmen descended to the level of mere wordmongers who picked the words of Aristotle so clean that nothing but the bones remained. It was this decadent school of meaningless verbiage against which Sir Francis Bacon directed his bitter shafts of irony and which he relegated to the potter's field of discarded notions. The Baconian, or inductive, system of reasoning, whereby facts are arrived at by a process of observation and verified by experimentation, cleared the way for the schools of modern science. Bacon was followed by Thomas Hobbes, for some time his secretary, who held mathematics to be the only exact science and thought to be essentially a mathematical process. Hobbes declared matter to be the only reality, and scientific investigation to be limited to the study of bodies, the phenomena relative to their probable causes, and the consequences which flow from them under every variety of circumstance. Hobbes laid special stress upon the significance of words, declaring understanding to be the faculty of perceiving the relationship between words and the objects for which they stand. Having broken away from the scholastic and theological schools, post-Reformation or modern, philosophy experienced a most prolific growth among many diverse lines. According to humanism, man is the measure of all things. Rationalism makes the reasoning faculties the basis of all knowledge. Political philosophy holds that man must comprehend his natural, social, and national privileges. Empiricism declares that alone to be true which is demonstrable by experiment or experience. Moralism emphasizes the necessity of right conduct as a fundamental philosophic tenet. Idealism asserts the realities of the universe to be superphysical, either mental or psychical. Realism, the reverse. And phenomenalism, restricts knowledge to facts or events which can be scientifically described or explained. The most recent developments in the field of philosophic thought are behaviorism and neorealism. The former estimates the intrinsic characteristics through an analysis of behavior. The latter may be summed up as the total extinction of idealism. Baruch de Spinoza, the eminent Dutch philosopher, conceived God to be a substance absolutely self-existent and needing no other conception besides itself to render it complete and intelligible. The nature of this being was held by Spinoza to be comprehensible only through its attributes, which are extension and thought. These combine to form an endless variety of aspects or modes. The mind of man is one of the modes of infinite thought, the body of man one of the modes of infinite extension. Through reason, man is enabled to elevate himself above the illusionary world of the senses and find eternal repose in perfect union with the divine essence. Spinoza, it has been said, deprived God of all personality, making deity synonymous with the universe. German philosophy had its inception with Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, whose theories are permeated with the qualities of optimism and idealism. Leibniz's criteria of sufficient reason revealed to him the insufficiency of Descartes' theory of extension, and he therefore concluded that substance itself contained an inherent power in the form of an incalculable number of separate and all-sufficient units. Matter, reduced to its ultimate particles, ceases to exist as a substantial body, 
being resolved into a mass of immaterial ideas or metaphysical units of power, to which Leibniz applied the term monad. Thus, the universe is composed of an infinite number of separate monadic entities unfolding spontaneously through the objectification of innate active qualities. All things are conceived as consisting of single monads of varying magnitudes or of aggregations of these bodies, which may exist as physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual substances. God is the first and the greatest monad. The spirit of man is an awakened monad in contradistinction to the lower kingdoms whose governing monadic powers are in a semi-dormant state. Though a product of the Leibnizian Wolfian school, Immanuel Kant, like Locke, dedicated himself to investigation of the powers and limits of human understanding. The result was his critical philosophy embracing the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, and the critique of judgment. Dr. W. J. Durant sums up Kant's philosophy in the concise statement that he rescued mind from matter. The mind Kant conceived to be the selector and coordinator of all perceptions, which in turn are the results of sensations, grouping themselves about some external object. In the classification of sensations and ideas, the mind employs certain categories of sense, time and space, of understanding, quality, relation, modality and causation, and the unity of apperception. Being subject to mathematical laws, time and space are considered absolute and sufficient basis for exact thinking. Kant's practical reason declared that while the nature of noumenon could never be comprehended by the reason, the fact of morality proves the existence of three necessary postulates, free will, immortality, and God. In the critique of judgment, Kant demonstrates the union of the noumenon and the phenomenon in art and biological evolution. German superintellectualism is the outgrowth of an overemphasis of Kant's theory of the autocratic supremacy of the mind over sensation and thought. The philosophy of Johann Gottlieb Fichte was a projection of Kant's philosophy, wherein he attempted to unite Kant's practical reason with his pure reason. Fichte held that the known is merely the contents of the consciousness of the knower, and that nothing can exist to the knower until it becomes part of those contents. Nothing is actually real therefore accept the facts of one's own mental experience. Recognizing the necessity of certain objective realities, Frederick Wilhelm Joseph von Schelling, who succeeded Fichte in the chair of philosophy at Jena, first employed the doctrine of identity as the groundwork for a complete system of philosophy. Whereas Fichte regarded self as the absolute, von Schelling conceived infinite and eternal mind to be the all-pervading cause. Realization of the Absolute is made possible by intellectual intuition, which being a superior or spiritual sense is able to disassociate itself from both subject and object. Kant's categories of space and time von Schelling conceived to be positive and negative respectively, and material existence the result of the reciprocal action of these two expressions. Von Schelling also held that the absolute in its process of self-development proceeds according to a law of rhythm consisting of three movements. The first, a reflective movement, is the attempt of the infinite to embody itself in the finite. The second, that of subsumption, is the attempt of the absolute to return to the infinite after involvement in the finite. The third, that of reason, is the neutral point wherein the two former movements are blended. 
George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel considered the intellectual intuition of von Schelling to be philosophically unsound, and hence turned his attention to the establishment of a system of philosophy based upon pure logic. Of Hegel, it has been said that he began with nothing and showed with logical precision how everything had proceeded from it in logical order. Hegel elevated logic to a position of supreme importance, in fact, as a quality of the absolute itself. God, he conceived to be a process of unfolding which never attains to the condition of unfoldment. In like manner, thought is without either beginning or end. Hegel further believed that all things owe their existence to their opposites and that all opposites are actually identical. Thus, the only existence is the relationship of opposites to each other, through whose combinations new elements are produced. As the divine mind is an eternal process of thought never accomplished, Hegel assails the very foundation of theism, and his philosophy limits immortality to the overflowing deity alone. Evolution is consequently the never-ending flow of divine consciousness out of itself. All creation, though continually moving, never arrives at any state other than that of ceaseless flow. Johann Friedrich Herbart's philosophy was a realistic reaction from the idealism of Fichte and von Schelling. To Herbart, the true basis of philosophy was the great mass of phenomena continually moving through the human mind. Examination of phenomena, however, demonstrates that a great part of it is unreal, at least incapable of supplying the mind with actual truth. To correct the false impressions caused by phenomena and discover reality, Herbart believed it necessary to resolve phenomena into separate elements, for reality exists in the elements and not in the whole. He stated that objects can be classified by three general terms, thing, matter, and mind. The first a unit of several properties, the second an existing object, the third a self-conscious being. All three notions give rise, however, to certain contradictions, with whose solution Herbart is primarily concerned. For example, consider matter, though capable of filling space, if reduced to its ultimate state, it consists of incomprehensibly minute units of divine energy, occupying no physical space whatsoever. The true subject of Arthur Schopenhauer's philosophy is the will. The object of his philosophy is the elevation of the mind to the point where it is capable of controlling the will. Schopenhauer likens the will to a strong blind man who carries on his shoulders the intellect, which is a weak lame man possessing the power of sight. The will is the tireless cause of manifestation and every part of nature the product of will. The brain is the product of the will to know, the hand the product of the will to grasp. The entire intellectual and emotional constitutions of man are subservient to the will and are largely concerned with the effort to justify the dictates of the will. Thus, the mind creates elaborate systems of thought simply to prove the necessity of the thing willed. Genius, however, represents the state wherein the intellect has gained supremacy over the will and the life is ruled by reason and not by impulse. The strength of Christianity, said Schopenhauer, lay in its pessimism and conquest of individual will. His own religious viewpoints resemble closely the Buddhistic. To him, nirvana represented the subjugation of will. Life, the manifestation of the blind will to live, he viewed as a misfortune, claiming that the true philosopher was one who, recognizing the wisdom of death, resisted the inherent urge to reproduce his kind. Of Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, 
It has been said that his peculiar contribution to the cause of human hope was the glad tidings that God had died of pity. The outstanding features of Nietzsche's philosophy are his doctrine of eternal recurrence and the extreme emphasis placed by him upon the will to power, a projection of Schopenhauer's will to live. Nietzsche believed the purpose of existence to be the production of a type of all-powerful individual, designated by him the Superman. This Superman was the product of careful culturing, for if not separated forcibly from the mass and consecrated to the production of power, the individual will sink back to the level of the deadly mediocre. Love, Nietzsche said, should be sacrificed to the production of the Superman, and those only should marry who are best fitted to produce this outstanding type. Nietzsche also believed in the rule of the aristocracy, both blood and breeding being essential to the establishment of this superior type. Nietzsche's doctrine did not liberate the masses. It rather placed over them supermen, for whom their inferior brothers and sisters should be perfectly reconciled to die. Ethically and politically, the superman was a law unto himself. To those who understand the true meaning of power to be virtue, self-control and truth, the ideality behind Nietzsche's theory is apparent. To the superficial, however, it is a philosophy heartless and calculating, concerned solely with the survival of the fittest. Of the other German schools of philosophic thought, Limitations of space preclude detailed mention. The more recent developments of the German school are Freudianism and relativism, often called the Einstein theory. The former is a system of psychoanalysis through psychopathic and neurological phenomena. The latter attacks the accuracy of the mechanical principles dependent upon the present theory of velocity. René Descartes stands at the head of the French school of philosophy and shares with Sir Francis Bacon the honor of founding the systems of modern science and philosophy. As Bacon based his conclusions upon observation of external things, so Descartes founded his metaphysical philosophy upon observation of internal things. Cartesianism, the philosophy of Descartes, first eliminates all things and then replaces as fundamental those premises without which existence is impossible. Descartes defined an idea and that which fills the mind when we conceive a thing. The truth of an idea must be determined by the criteria of clarity and distinctness. Hence, Descartes held that a clear and distinct idea must be true. Descartes has the distinction also of evolving his own philosophy without recourse to authority. Consequently, his conclusions are built up from the simplest of premises and grow in complexity as the structure of his philosophy takes form. The positive philosophy of Augustic Count is based upon the theory that the human intellect develops through three stages of thought. The first and lowest stage is theological, the second, metaphysical, and the third and highest, positive. Thus, theology and metaphysics are the feeble intellectual efforts of humanity's child mind, and positivism is the mental expression of the adult intellect. In his Cours de Philosophie Positive, Count writes, in the final, the positive state, the mind has given over the vain search after absolute notions, the origin and destination of the universe, and the causes of phenomena, and applies itself to the study of their laws, that is, their invariable relations of succession and resemblance. Reasoning and observation duly combined are the means of this knowledge. Kant's theory is described as an enormous system of materialism. According to Kant, it was formerly said that the heavens declare the glory of God, but now they only recount the glory of Newton and Laplace. 
Among the French schools of philosophy are traditionalism, often applied to Christianity, which esteems tradition as the proper foundation for philosophy. The sociological school, which regards humanity as one vast social organism. The encyclopedists, whose efforts to classify knowledge according to the Baconian system revolutionized European thought. Voltairism, which assailed the divine origin of the Christian faith and adopted an attitude of extreme skepticism toward all matters pertaining to theology. And neocriticism, a French revision of the doctrines of Immanuel Kant. Henry Bergson, the intuitionalist, undoubtedly the greatest living French philosopher, presents a theory of mystic anti-intellectualism founded upon the premise of creative evolution. His rapid rise to popularity is due to his appeal to the finer sentiments in human nature, which rebel against the hopelessness and helplessness of materialistic science and realistic philosophy. Bergson sees God as life continually struggling against the limitations of matter. He even conceives the possible victory of life over matter, and in time the annihilation of death. Applying the Baconian method to the mind, John Locke, the great English philosopher, declared that everything which passes through the mind is a legitimate object of mental philosophy, and that these mental phenomena are as real and valid as the objects of any other science. In his investigations of the origin of phenomena, Locke departed from the Baconian requirement that it was first necessary to make a natural history of facts. The mind was regarded by Locke to be blank until experience is inscribed upon it. Thus, the mind is built up of received impressions plus reflection. The soul Locke believed to be incapable of apprehension of deity and man's realization or cognition of God to be merely an inference of the reasoning faculty. David Hume was the most enthusiastic and also the most powerful of the disciples of Locke. Attacking Locke's sensationalism, Bishop George Berkeley substituted for it a philosophy founded on Locke's fundamental premises, but which he developed as a system of idealism. Berkeley held that ideas are the real objects of knowledge. He declared it impossible to adduce proof that sensations are occasioned by material objects. He also attempted to prove that matter has no existence. Berkeleyanism holds that the universe is permeated and governed by mind. Thus, the belief in the existence of material objects is merely a mental condition, and the objects themselves may well be fabrications of the mind. At the same time, Berkeley considered it worse than insanity to question the accuracy of the perceptions. For if the power of the perceptive faculties be questioned, man is reduced to a creature incapable of knowing, estimating, or realizing anything whatsoever. In the associationalism of Hartley and Hume was advanced the theory that the association of ideas is the fundamental principle of psychology and the explanation for all mental phenomena. Hartley held that if a sensation be repeated several times, there is a tendency towards its spontaneous repetition, which may be awakened by association with some other idea, though the object causing the original reaction be absent. Utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, Archdeacon Paley, and James and John Stuart Mill declares that to be the greatest good which is the most useful to the greatest number. John Stuart Mill believed that if it is possible through sensation to secure knowledge of the properties of things, it is also possible through a higher state of the mind, that is, intuition or reason, to gain a knowledge of the true substance of things. Darwinism is the doctrine of natural selection and physical evolution. 
It has been said of Charles Robert Darwin that he determined to banish spirit altogether from the universe and make the infinite and omnipresent mind itself synonymous with the all-pervading powers of an impersonal nature. Agnosticism and neo-Hegelianism are also noteworthy products of this period of philosophic thought. The former is the belief that the nature of ultimates is unknowable, the latter an English and American revival of Hegel's idealism. Dr. W.J. Durant declares that Herbert Spencer's great work, First Principles, made him almost at once the most famous philosopher of his time. Spencerianism is a philosophic positivism which describes evolution as an ever-increasing complexity with equilibrium as its highest possible state. According to Spencer, life is a continuous process from homogeneity to heterogeneity and back from heterogeneity to homogeneity. Life also involves the continual adjustment of internal relations to external relations. Most famous of all Spencer's aphorisms is his definition of deity. God is infinite intelligence, infinitely diversified through infinite time and infinite space, manifesting through an infinitude of ever-evolving individualities. The universality of the law of evolution was emphasized by Spencer, who applied it not only to the form but also to the intelligence behind the form. In every manifestation of being, he recognized the fundamental tendency of unfoldment from simplicity to complexity, observing that when the point of equilibrium is reached, it is always followed by the process of dissolution. According to Spencer, however, disintegration took place only that reintegration might follow upon a higher level of being. The chief position in the Italian school of philosophy should be awarded to Giordano Bruno who, after enthusiastically accepting Copernicus's theory that the sun is the center of the solar system, declared the sun to be a star and all the stars to be suns. In Bruno's time, the earth was regarded as the center of all creation. Consequently, when he thus relegated the world and man to an obscure corner in space, the effect was cataclysmic. For the heresy of affirming a multiplicity of universes and conceiving cosmos to be so vast that no single creed could fill it, Bruno paid the forfeit of his life. Vichoism is a philosophy based upon the conclusions of Giovanni Battista Vico, who held that God controls his world not miraculously but through natural law. The laws by which men rule themselves, Vico declared, issue from a spiritual source within mankind which is en rapport with the law of the deity. Hence, material law is of divine origin and reflects the dictates of the spiritual father. The philosophy of ontologism, developed by Vincenzo Gioberti, generally considered more as a theologian than a philosopher, posits God as the only being and the origin of all knowledge, knowledge being identical with the deity itself. God is consequently called being. All other manifestations are existences. Truth is to be discovered through reflection upon this mystery. The most important of modern Italian philosophers is Benedetto Croce, a Hegelian idealist. Croce conceives ideas to be the only reality. He is anti-theological in his viewpoints, does not believe in the immortality of the soul, and seeks to substitute ethics and aesthetics for religion. Among other branches of Italian philosophy should be mentioned sensism, sensationalism, which posits the sense perceptions as the sole channels for the reception of knowledge. 
Criticism, or the philosophy of accurate judgment and neo-scholasticism, which is a revival of Thomism encouraged by the Roman Catholic Church. The two outstanding schools of American philosophy are transcendentalism and pragmatism. Transcendentalism, exemplified in the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson, emphasizes the power of the transcendental over the physical. Many of Emerson's writings show pronounced Oriental influence, particularly his essays on the oversoul and the law of compensation. The theory of pragmatism, while not original with Professor William James, owes its widespread popularity as a philosophic tenet to his efforts. Pragmatism may be defined as the doctrine that the meaning and nature of things are to be discovered from consideration of their consequences. The true, according to James, is only an expedient in the way of our thinking, just as the right is only an expedient in the way of our behaving. See his pragmatism. John Dewey, the instrumentalist who applies the experimental attitude to all the aims of life, should be considered a commentator of James. To Dewey, growth and change are limitless and no ultimates are postulated. The long residence in America of George Santayana warrants the listing of this great Spaniard among the ranks of American philosophers. Defending himself with a shield of skepticism alike from the illusions of the senses and the cumulative errors of the ages, Santayana seeks to lead mankind into a more apprehending state denominated by him the life of reason. In addition to the authorities already quoted and the preparation of the foregoing abstract of the main branches of philosophic thought, the present writer has had recourse to Stanley's history of philosophy, morels and historical and critical view of the speculative philosophy of Europe in the 19th century, Singer's Modern Thinkers and Present Problems, Rand's Modern Classical Philosophers, Windelband's History of Philosophy, Perry's Present Philosophical Tendencies, Hamilton's Lectures on Metaphysics and Logic, and Durant's The Story of Philosophy. Having thus traced the more or less sequential development of philosophic speculation from Thales to James and Bergson, it is now in order to direct the reader's attention to the elements leading to and the circumstances attendant upon the genesis of philosophic thinking. Although the Hellenes proved themselves peculiarly responsive to the disciplines of philosophy, this science of sciences should not be considered indigenous to them. Although some of the Grecians, writes Thomas Stanley, have challenged to their nation the original of philosophy, yet the more learned of them have acknowledged it to be derived from the East. The magnificent institutions of Hindu, Chaldean, and Egyptian learning must be recognized as the actual source of Greek wisdom. The last was patterned after the shadow cast by the sanctuaries of Elora, Ur, and Memphis upon the thought substance of a primitive people. Thales, Pythagoras, and Plato, in their philosophic wanderings, contacted many distant cults and brought back the lore of Egypt and the inscrutable Orient. From indisputable facts such as these, it is evident that philosophy emerged from the religious mysteries of antiquity, not being separated from religion until after the decay of the mysteries. Hence, he who would fathom the depths of philosophic thought must first familiarize himself with the teachings of those initiated priests designated as the first custodians of divine revelation. The mysteries claim to be the guardians of a transcendental knowledge so profound as to be incomprehensible, save to the most exalted intellect, and so potent as to be revealed with safety only to those in whom 
personal ambition was dead and who had consecrated their lives to the unselfish service of humanity. Both the dignity of these sacred institutions and the validity of their claim to possession of universal wisdom are tested by the most illustrious philosophers of antiquity, who were themselves initiated into the profundities of the secret doctrine and who bore witness to its efficacy. The question may legitimately be propounded, if these ancient mystical institutions were of such great pith and moment, why is so little information now available concerning them and the arcana they claim to possess? The answer is simple enough. The mysteries were secret societies, binding their initiates to inviolable secrecy and avenging with death the betrayal of their sacred trusts. Although these schools were the true inspiration of the various doctrines promulgated by the ancient philosophers, the fountainhead of those doctrines was never revealed to the profane. Furthermore, in the lapse of time, the teachings became so inextricably linked with the names of their disseminators that the actual but recondite source, the mysteries, came to be wholly ignored. Symbolism is the language of the mysteries. In fact, it is the language not only of mysticism and philosophy, but of all nature. For every law and power active in universal procedure is manifested to the limited sense perceptions of man through the medium of symbol. Every form existing in a diversified sphere of being is symbolic of the divine activity by which it is produced. By symbols, men have ever sought to communicate to each other those thoughts which transcend the limitations of language. Rejecting man-conceived dialects as inadequate and unworthy to perpetuate divine ideas, the mysteries thus chose symbolism as a far more ingenious and ideal method of preserving their transcendental knowledge. In a single figure, a symbol may both reveal and conceal, for to the wise the subject of the symbol is obvious, while to the ignorant the figure remains inscrutable. Hence he who seeks to unveil the secret doctrine of antiquity must search for that doctrine not upon the open pages of books which might fall into the hands of the unworthy, but in the place where it was originally concealed. Far-sighted were the initiates of antiquity. They realized that nations come and go that empires rise and fall, and that the golden ages of art, science, and idealism are succeeded by the dark ages of superstition. With the needs of posterity foremost in mind, the sages of old went to inconceivable extremes to make certain that their knowledge should be preserved. They engraved it upon the face of mountains and concealed it with the measurements of colossal images, each of which was a geometric marvel. Their knowledge of chemistry and mathematics they hid within mythologies which the ignorant would perpetuate, or in the spans and arches of their temples which time has not entirely obliterated. They wrote in characters that neither the vandalism of men nor the ruthlessness of the elements could completely efface. Today men gaze with awe and reverence upon the mighty Memnon standing alone in the sands of Egypt, or upon the strange terraced pyramids of Palenque. Mute testimonies, these are the lost arts and sciences of antiquity, and concealed this wisdom must remain until this race has learned to read the universal language. Symbolism The book to which this is the introduction is dedicated to the proposition that concealed within the emblematic figures, allegories, and rituals of the ancients is a secret doctrine concerning the inner mysteries of life which doctrine has been preserved in toto among a small band of initiated minds since the beginning of the world. Departing, these illumined philosophers left their formula that others too might attain to understanding. 
But lest these secret processes fall into uncultured hands and be perverted, the great arcanum was always concealed in symbol or allegory, and those who can today discover its lost keys may open with them a treasure house of philosophic, scientific, and religious truths. The Ancient Mysteries and Secret Societies Which Have Influenced Modern Masonic Symbolism when confronted with a problem involving the use of the reasoning faculties, individuals of strong intellect keep their poise and seek to reach a solution by obtaining facts bearing upon the question. Those of immature mentality, on the other hand, when similarly confronted, are overwhelmed. While the former may be qualified to solve the riddle of their own destiny, the latter must be led like a flock of sheep and taught in simple language. They depend almost entirely upon the ministrations of the shepherd. The Apostle Paul said that these little ones must be fed with milk, but that meat is the food of strong men. Thoughtlessness is almost synonymous with childishness, while thoughtfulness is symbolic of maturity. There are, however, but few mature minds in the world, and thus it was that the philosophic religious doctrines of the pagans were divided to meet the needs of these two fundamental groups of human intellect. One philosophic, the other incapable of appreciating the deeper mysteries of life. To the discerning few were revealed the esoteric or spiritual teachings, while the unqualified may receive only the literal or exoteric interpretations. In order to make simple the great truths of nature and the abstract principles of natural law, the vital forces of the universe were personified, becoming the gods and goddesses of the ancient mythologies. While the ignorant multitudes brought their offerings to the altars of Priapus and Pan, deities representing the procreative energies, the wise recognized in these marble statues only symbolic concretions of great abstract truths. In all cities of the ancient world were temples for public worship and offering. In every community also were philosophers and mystics deeply versed in nature's lore. These individuals were usually banded together, forming seclusive philosophic and religious schools. The more important of these groups were known as the Mysteries. Many of the great minds of antiquity were initiated into these secret fraternities by strange and mysterious rites, some of which were extremely cruel. Alexander Wilder defines the mysteries as sacred dramas performed at stated periods. The most celebrated were those of Isis, Sabesius, Sibyl, and Eleusis. After being admitted, the initiates were instructed in the secret wisdom which had been preserved for ages. Plato, an initiate of one of those secret orders, was severely criticized because in his writings he revealed to the public many of the secret philosophical principles of the mysteries. Every pagan nation had, and has, not only its state religion, but another into which the philosophic elect alone have gained entrance. Many of these ancient cults vanished from the earth without revealing their secrets, but few have survived to test the ages, and their mysterious symbols are still preserved. Much of the ritualism of Freemasonry is based on the trials to which candidates were subjected by the ancient hierophants before the keys of wisdom were entrusted to them. Few realize the extent to which the ancient secret schools influence contemporary intellects, and through those minds, posterity. 
Robert McCoy, 33rd degree, in his General History of Freemasonry, pays a magnificent tribute to the part played by the ancient mysteries in the rearing of the edifice of human culture. He says, in part, it appears that all the perfection of civilization and all the advancement made in philosophy, science, and art among the ancients are due to those institutions which, under the veil of mystery, sought to illustrate the sublimest truths of religion, morality, and virtue, and to press upon them on the hearts of their disciples. Their chief object was to teach the doctrine of one God, the resurrection of man to eternal life, the dignity of the human soul, and to lead the people to see the shadow of the deity in the beauty, magnificent, and splendor of the universe. With the decline of virtue which has preceded the destruction of every nation of history, the mysteries became perverted. Sorcery took the place of the divine magic. Indescribable practices, such as the bacchanalia, were introduced and perversion ruled supreme, for no institution can be any better than the members of which it is composed. In despair, the few who were true sought to preserve the secret doctrines from oblivion. In some cases they succeeded, but more often the arcanum was lost and only the empty shell of the mysteries remained. Thomas Taylor has written, Man is naturally a religious animal. From the earliest dawning of his consciousness, man has worshipped and revered things as symbolic of the invisible, omnipresent, indescribable thing concerning which he could discover practically nothing. The pagan mysteries opposed the Christians during the early centuries of their church, declaring that the new faith, Christianity, did not demand virtue and integrity as requisites for salvation. Celsus expresses himself on the subject in the following caustic terms. That I do not, however, accuse the Christians more bitterly than truth compels, may be conjectured from hence, that the criers who call men to other mysteries proclaim as follows. Let him approach whose hands are pure, and whose words are wise. And again others proclaim, Let him approach who is pure from all wickedness whose soul is not conscious of any evil, and who leads a just and upright life. And these things are proclaimed by those who promise a purification from error. Let us now hear who those are that are called to the Christian mysteries. Whoever is a sinner, whoever is unwise, whoever is a fool, and whoever, in short, is miserable, him to the kingdom of God will receive. Do you not, therefore, call a sinner, an unjust man, a thief, a housebreaker, a wizard, one who is sacrilegious, and a robber of sepulchres? What other persons would the crier nominate who should call robbers together? It was not the true faith of the early Christian mystics that Celsus attacked, but the false forms that were creeping in even during his day. The ideals of early Christianity were based upon the high moral standards of the pagan mysteries, and the first Christians who met under the city of Rome used as their places of worship the subterranean temples of Mithras, from whose cult had been borrowed much of the sacerdotalism of the Modem church. The ancient philosophers believed that no man could live intelligently who did not have a fundamental knowledge of nature and her laws. Before man can obey, he must understand, and the mysteries were devoted to instructing man concerning the operation of divine law in the terrestrial sphere. Few of the early cults actually worshipped anthropomorphic deities, 
although their symbolism might lead one to believe they did. They were moralistic rather than religionistic, philosophic rather than theologic. They taught man to use his faculties more intelligently, to be patient in the face of adversity, to be courageous when confronted by danger, to be true in the midst of temptation, and most of all, to view a worthy life as the most acceptable sacrifice to God, and his body as an altar sacred to the deity. Sun worship played an important part in nearly all the early pagan mysteries. This indicates the probability of their Atlantean origin, for the people of Atlantis were sun worshippers. The solar deity was usually personified as a beautiful youth with long golden hair to symbolize the rays of the sun. The golden sun god was slain by wicked ruffians who personified the evil principle of the universe. By means of certain rituals and ceremonies, symbolic of purification and regeneration, this wonderful god of good was brought back to life and became the savior of his people. The secret processes whereby he was resurrected symbolize those cultures by means of which a man is able to overcome his lower nature, master his appetites, and give expression to the higher side of himself. The mysteries were organized for the purpose of assisting the struggling human creature to reawaken the spiritual powers which, surrounded by the flaming ring of lust and degeneracy, lay asleep within his soul. In other words, man was offered a way by which he could regain his lost estate. See Wagner's Siegfried. In the ancient world, nearly all the secret societies were philosophic and religious. During the medieval centuries, they were chiefly religious and political, although a few philosophic schools remained. In modern times, secret societies in the Occidental countries are largely political or fraternal, although in a few of them, as in the Masonry, the ancient religious and philosophic principles still survive. Space prohibits a detailed discussion of the secret schools. There were literally scores of these ancient cults, with branches in all parts of the eastern and western worlds. Some, such as those of Pythagoras and the Hermetists, show a decided oriental influence, while the Rosicrucians, according to their own proclamations, gained much of their wisdom from Arabian mystics. Although the mystery schools are usually associated with civilization, there is evidence that most uncivilized peoples of prehistoric times had a knowledge of them. Natives of distant lands, many in the lowest forms of savagery, have mystic rituals and secret practices which, although primitive, are of a decided Masonic tinge. The Druidic Mysteries of Britain and Gaul the original and primitive inhabitants of Britain, at some remote period, revived and reformed their national institutes. Their priest or instructor had hitherto been simply named Guid, but it was considered to have become necessary to divide this office between the national or superior priest and another whose influence would be more limited. From henceforth, the former became Derwid, Druid, or superior instructor, and the latter, Gowid, or Owid, Ovate, subordinate instructor, and both went by the general name of Bird, Bards, or Teachers of Wisdom. 
As the system matured and augmented, the Bardic Order consisted of three classes. The Druids, Beard Braint, or Privileged Bards, and Ovates. See Samuel Merrick and Charles Smith, the costume of the original inhabitants of the British Islands. The origin of the word Druid is under dispute. Max Mueller believes that, like the Irish word Druai, it means the men of the oak trees. He further draws attention to the fact that the forest gods and tree deities of the Greeks were called dryads. Some believe the word to be of Teutonic origin, others ascribe it to the Welsh. A few trace it to the Gaelic Druid, which means a wise man or a sorcerer. In Sanskrit, the word Dru means timber. At the time of the Roman conquest, the Druids were thoroughly ensconced in Britain and Gaul. Their power over the people was unquestioned, and there were instances in which armies about to attack each other sheathed their swords when ordered to do so by the white-robed Druids. No undertaking of great importance was scattered without assistance of these patriarchs, who stood as mediators between the gods and men. The Druidic order is deservedly credited with having had a deep understanding of nature and her laws. The Encyclopedia Britannica states that geography, physical science, natural theology, and astrology were their favorite studies. The Druids had a fundamental knowledge of medicine, especially the use of herbs and simples. Crude surgical instruments have also been found in England and Ireland. An odd treatise on early British medicine states that every practitioner was expected to have a garden or backyard for the growing of certain herbs necessary to his profession. Eliphas Levi, the celebrated transcendentalist, makes the following significant statement. The Druids were priests and physicians, curing by magnetism and charging amulets with their fluidic influence. Their universal remedies were mistletoe and serpent eggs, because the substances attract the astral light in a special manner. The solemnity with which mistletoe was cut down drew upon this plant the popular confidence and rendered it powerfully magnetic. The progress of magnetism will someday reveal to us the absorbing properties of mistletoe. We shall then understand the secret of these spongy growths which drew the unused virtues of the plants and became surcharged with tinctures and saviors. Mushrooms, truffles, gallon trees, and the different kinds of mistletoe will be employed with understanding by a medical science, which will be new because it is old, but one must not move quicker than science, which recedes that it may advance the further. See the history of magic. Not only was the mistletoe sacred as symbolic of the universal medicine or panacea, but also because of the fact that it grew upon the oak tree. Through the symbol of the oak, the Druids worshipped the supreme deity. Therefore, anything growing upon that tree was sacred to him. At certain seasons, according to the positions of the sun, moon, and stars, the arch-Druid climbed the oak tree and cut the mistletoe with golden sickle consecrated for that service. The parasitic growth was caught in white cloths provided for that purpose, lest it touch the earth and be polluted by terrestrial vibrations. Usually a sacrifice of a white bull was made under the tree. 
The Druids were initiates of a secret school that existed in their midst. This school, which closely resembled the Bacchic and Eleusinian mysteries of Greece or the Egyptian rites of Isis and Osiris, is justly designated the Druidic mysteries. There has been much speculation concerning the secret wisdom that the Druids claimed to possess. Their secret teachings were never written, but were communicated orally to specially prepared candidates. Robert Brown, 32nd degree, is of the opinion that the British priests secured their information from Tyrian and Phoenician navigators who thousands of years before the Christian era established colonies in Britain and Gaul while searching for tin. Thomas Maurice, in his Indian Antiquities, discourses at length on Phoenician, Carthaginian, and Greek expeditions to the British Isles for the purpose of procuring tin. Others are of the opinion that the mysteries as celebrated by the Druids were Oriental origin, possibly Buddhistic. The proximity of the British Isles to the lost Atlantis may account for the sun worship, which plays an important part in the rituals of Druidism. According to Artemidorus, Ceres and Persephone were worshipped on an island close to Britain with rites and ceremonies similar to those of Samothrace. There is no doubt that the Druidic pantheon includes a large number of Greek and Roman deities. This greatly amazed Caesar during his conquests of Britain and Gaul and caused him to affirm that these tribes adored Mercury, Apollo, Mars, and Jupiter in a manner similar to that of the Latin countries. It is almost certain that the Druidic mysteries were not indigenous to Britain or Gaul, but migrated from one of the more ancient civilizations. The school of the Druids was divided into three distinct parts, and the secret teachings embodied therein are practically the same as the mysteries concealed under the allegories of Blue Lodge masonry. The lowest of the three divisions was that of the Ovate, Ovid, this was an honorary degree, required no special purification or preparation. The Ovates dressed in green, the Druidic color of learning, and were expected to know something about medicine, astronomy, poetry if possible, and sometimes music. An Ovate was an individual admitted to the Druidic order because of his general excellence and superior knowledge concerning the problems of life. The second division was that of Bard, Beard. Its members were robed in sky blue to represent harmony and truth, and to them was assigned the labor of memorizing, at least in part, the 20,000 verses of Druidic sacred poetry. They were often pictured with the primitive British or Irish harp, an instrument strung with human hair and having as many strings as there were ribs on one side of the human body. These bards were often chosen as teachers of candidates seeking entrance into the Druidic mysteries. Neophytes wore striped robes of blue, green, and white, these being the three sacred colors of the Druidic order. The third division was that of Druid, Dirwadon. Its particular labor was to minister to the religious needs of the people. To reach this dignity, the candidate must first become a barred braint. The Druids also dressed in white, symbolic of their purity and the color used by them to symbolize the sun. In order to reach the exalted position of archdruid, or spiritual head of the organization, it was necessary for a priest to pass through the six successive degrees of the Druidic order. The members of the different degrees were 
differentiated by the color of their sashes, for all of them wore robes of white. Some writers are of the opinion that the title of Archdruid was hereditary, descending from father to son, but it is more probable that the honor was conferred by ballot election. Its recipient was chosen for his virtues and integrity from the most learned members of the higher Druidic degrees. According to James Gardner, there were usually two Archdruids in Britain, one residing on the Isle of Anglesia and the other on the Isle of Man. Presumably, there were others in Gaul. These dignitaries generally carried golden scepters and were crowned with wreaths of oak leaves, symbolic of their authority. The younger members of the Druidic order were clean-shaven and modestly dressed, but the more aged had long grey beards and wore magnificent golden ornaments. The educational system of the Druids in Britain was superior to that of their colleagues on the continent, and consequently many of the Gallic youths were sent to the Druidic colleges in Britain for their philosophical instruction and training. Eliphas Levi states that the Druids lived in strict abstinence, studied their natural sciences, preserved the deepest secrecy, and admitted new members only after long probationary periods. Many of the priests of the order lived in buildings not unlike the monasteries of the modern world. They were associated in groups like aesthetics of the Far East. Although celibacy was not demanded of them, few married. Many of the Druids retired from the world and lived as recluses in caves, in rough stone houses, or in little shacks built in the depths of a forest. Here they prayed and meditated, emerging only to perform their religious duties. James Freeman Clark, in his Ten Great Religions, describes the beliefs of the Druids as follows. The Druids believed in three worlds and in transmigration from one to the other, in a world above this in which happiness predominated, a world below of misery, and this present state. This transmigration was to punish and reward and also to purify the soul. In the present world, they said, good and evil are exactly balanced, so man has the utmost freedom and is able to choose or reject either. The Welsh triads tell us there are three objects of metempsychosis. To collect into the soul the properties of all being, to acquire a knowledge of all things, and to get power to conquer evil. There are also, they say, three kinds of knowledge, knowledge of the nature of each thing, of its cause, and its influence. There are three things which continually grow less, darkness, falsehood, and death. There are three which constantly increase, light, life, and truth. Like nearly all schools of the mysteries, the teachings of the Druids were divided into two distinct sections. The simpler, a moral code, was taught to all the people, while the deeper, esoteric doctrine was given only to initiated priests. To be admitted to the order, a candidate was required to be of good family and of high moral character. No important secrets were entrusted to him until he had been tempted in many ways and his strength of character severely tried. The Druids taught the people of Britain and Gaul concerning the immortality of the soul. They believed in transmigration and apparently in reincarnation. They borrowed in one life, promising to pay back in the next. 
They believed in a purgatorian type of hell where they would be purged of their sins, afterward passing on to the happiness of unity with the gods. The Druids taught that all men would be saved, but that some must return to earth many times to learn the lessons of human life and to overcome the inherent evil of their own natures. Before a candidate was entrusted with the secret doctrines of the Druids, he was bound with a vow of secrecy. These doctrines were imparted only in the depths of forests and in the darkness of caves. In these places, far from the haunts of men, the neophyte was instructed concerning the creation of the universe, the personalities of the gods, the laws of nature, the secrets of occult medicine, the mysteries of the celestial bodies, and the rudiments of magic and sorcery. The Druids had a great number of feast days. The new and full moon and the sixth day of the moon were sacred periods. It is believed that initiations took place only at the two solstices and the two equinoxes. At dawn on the 25th day of December, the birth of the sun god was celebrated. The secret teachings of the Druids are said by some to be tinctured with Pythagorean philosophy. The Druids had a Madonna, a virgin mother, with a child in her arms, who was sacred to their mysteries, and their sun god was resurrected at the time of the year corresponding to that at which modern Christians celebrate Easter. Both the cross and the serpent were sacred to the Druids who made the former by cutting off the branches of an oak tree and fastening one of them to the main trunk in the form of the letter T. This oaken cross became symbolic of their superior deity. They also worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. The moon received their special veneration. Caesar stated that Mercury was one of the chief deities of the Gauls. The Druids are believed to have worshipped Mercury under the similitude of a stone cube. They also had great veneration for the nature spirits, fairies, gnomes, and undines, little creatures of the forest and rivers to whom many offerings were made. Describing the temples of the Druids, Charles Heckethorn, in The Secret Societies of All Ages and Countries, says, Their temples wherein the sacred fire were preserved were generally situate on eminences and in dense groves of oak and assumed various forms. Circular, because a circle was the emblem of the universe. Oval, in allusion to the mundane egg, from which issued, according to the traditions of many nations, the universe, or, according to others, our first parents. Serpentine, because of a serpent was a symbol of who? The Druidic Osiris. Cruciform, because a cross is an emblem of regeneration or winged to represent the motion of the divine spirit. Their chief deities were reducible to two, a male and a female, the great father and mother, Hu and Siridwin, distinguished by the same characteristics as belong to Osiris and Isis, Bacchus and Ceres, or any other supreme god and goddess representing the two principles of all being. Geoffrey Higgins states that Hu, the mighty, regarded as the first settler of Britain, came from a place which the Welsh triads call the Summer Country, the present site of Constantinople. Albert Pike says the lost word of masonry is concealed in the name of the Druid god Hu. The meager information extant concerning the secret initiations of the Druids indicates that 
decided similarity between their mystery school and the schools of Greece and Egypt, who, the sun god, was murdered and, after a number of strange ordeals and mystic rituals, was restored to life. There were three degrees of the Druidic mysteries, but few successfully passed them all. The candidate was buried in a coffin, as symbolic of the death of the sun god. The supreme test, however, was being sent out to sea in an open boat. While undergoing this ordeal, many lost their lives. Talesian, an ancient scholar who passed through the mysteries, described the initiation of the open boat in Faber's pagan idolatry. The few who passed this third degree were said to have been born again, and were instructed in the secret and hidden truths which the Druid priests had preserved from antiquity. From these initiates were chosen many of the dignitaries of the British religious and political world. Further details, see Faber's Pagan Idolatry, Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma, and Godfrey Higgins' Celtic Druids. The Rites of Mithras When the Persian mysteries immigrated into southern Europe, they were quickly assimilated by the Latin mind. The cult grew rapidly, especially among the Roman soldiery, and during the Roman Wars of Conquest, the teachings were carried by the legionaries to nearly all parts of Europe. So powerful did the cult of Mithras become that at least one Roman emperor was initiated into the order, which met in caverns under the city of Rome. Concerning the spread of this mystery school through different parts of Europe, C.W. King, in his Gnostics and the Remains, says, Mithraic bas-reliefs cut on the faces of rocks or on stone tablets still abound in the countries formerly the western provinces of the Roman Empire. Many exist in Germany, still more in France, and in this island, Britain, they have often been discovered on the line of the Pict Wall and the noted one at Bath. Alexander Wilder, in his Philosophy and Ethics of the Zoroasters, states that Mithras is the Zend title for the sun, and he is supposed to dwell within that shining orb. Mithras has a male and a female aspect though not himself androgynous. As Mithras, he is the ford of the sun, powerful and radiant, and most magnificent of the Yazadas, Izads or Jenai of the sun. As Mithra, this deity represents the feminine principle. The mundane universe is recognized as her symbol. She represents nature as receptive and terrestrial, and as fruitful only when bathed in the glory of the solar orb. The Mithraic cult is the simplification of the more elaborate teachings of Zarathustra, Zoroaster, the Persian fire magician. According to the Persians, there coexisted in eternity two principles. The first of these, Ahura Mazda, or Ormuzd, was the spirit of good. From Ormuzd came forth a number of hierarchies of good and beautiful spirits, angels and archangels. The second of these eternally existing principles was called Ahriman. He was also pure and beautiful spirit, but he later rebelled against Ormuzd, being jealous of his power. This did not occur, however, until after Ormuzd had created light, for previously Ahriman had not been conscious of the existence of Ormuzd. Because of his jealousy and rebellion, Araman became the spirit of evil, 
From himself, he individualized a host of destructive creatures to injure Ormuzd. When Ormuzd created the earth, Araman entered into its grosser elements. Whenever Ormuzd did a good deed, Araman placed the principle of evil within it. At last, when Ormuzd created the human race, Araman became incarnate to the lower nature of man, so that in each personality the spirit of good and the spirit of evil struggle for control. For three thousand years, Ormuzd ruled the celestial worlds with light and goodness. Then he created man. For another three thousand years, he ruled man with wisdom and integrity. Then the power of Araman began, and the struggle for the soul of man continues through the next period of three thousand years. During the fourth period of three thousand years, the power of Araman will be destroyed. Good will return to the world again, evil and death will be vanquished, and at last the spirit of evil will bow humbly before the throne of Ormuzd. While Ormuzd and Araman are struggling for control of the human soul and for supremacy in nature, Mithras, god of intelligence, stands as mediator between the two. Many authors have noted the similarity between Mercury and Mithras. As the chemical Mercury acts as a solvent, according to alchemists, so Mithras seeks to harmonize the two celestial opposites. There are many points of resemblance between Christianity and the cult of Mithras. One of the reasons for this, probably, is that the Persian mystics invaded Italy during the first century after Christ, and the early history of both cults were closely interwoven. The Encyclopedia Britannica makes the following statement concerning the Mithraic and Christian mysteries. The fraternal and democratic spirit of the first communities, and their humble origin. The identification of the object of adoration with light and the sun, the leg ends of the shepherds with their gifts and adoration, the flood and the ark, the representation and art of the fiery chariot, the drawing of water from the rock, the use of the bell and candle, holy water and the communion, the sanctification of Sunday and of the 25th of December, the insistence on moral conduct, the emphasis placed on abstinence and self-control, the doctrine of heaven and hell, of primitive revelation, of the mediation of the Logos emanating from the divine, the atoning sacrifice, the constant warfare between good and evil and the final triumph of the former, the immortality of the soul, the last judgment, the resurrection of the flesh and the fiery destruction of the universe, these are some of the resemblances which, whether real or only apparent, enabled Mithraism to prolong its resistance to Christianity. The rites of Mithras were performed in caves. Porphyr, in his Cave of the Nymphs, states that Zarathustra, Zoroaster, was the first to consecrate a cave to worship of God because a cavern was symbolic of the earth, or the lower world of darkness. John P. Lundy, in his monumental Christianity, describes the cave of Mistress as follows. But this cave was adorned with the signs of the zodiac, Cancer and Capricorn. The summer and winter solstices were chiefly conspicuous as the gates of souls descending into this life. 
or passing out of it in their ascent to the gods, Cancer being the gate of descent and Capricorn of ascent. These are the two avenues of the immortals passing up and down from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. The so-called Chair of St. Peter in Rome was believed to have been used in one of the pagan mysteries, possibly that of Mithras, in whose subterranean grottos the votaries of the Christian mysteries met in the early days of their faith. In Anacopolis, Godfried Higgins writes that, in 1662, while cleaning the sacred chair of Bar-Jonas, the twelve labors of Hercules were discovered upon it, and that later the French discovered upon the same chair the Mohammedan Confessions of Faith, written in Arabic. Initiation into the rites of Mithras, like initiation into many other ancient schools of philosophy, apparently consisted of three important degrees. Preparation for these degrees consisted of self-purification, the building up of the intellectual powers, and the control of animal nature. In the first degree, the candidate was given a crown upon the point of a sword, and instructed in the mysteries of Mithras's hidden power. Probably he was taught that the golden crown represented his own spiritual nature, which must be objectified and unfolded before he could truly glorify Mithras, for Mithras was his own soul, standing as mediator between Ormuzd, his spirit, and Araman, his animal nature. In the second degree, he was given the armor of intelligence and purity and sent into the darkness of subterranean pits to fight the beasts of lust, passion, and degeneracy. In the third degree, he was given a cape, upon which were drawn or woven the signs of the zodiac and other astronomical symbols. After his initiations were over, he was nailed as one who has risen from the dead, was instructed in the secret teachings of the Persian mystics, and became a full-fledged member of the order. Candidates who successfully passed the Mithraic initiations were called lions, and were marked upon their foreheads with the Egyptian cross. Mithras himself is often pictured with the head of a lion and two pairs of wings. Throughout the entire ritual were repeated references to the birth of Mithras as the sun god, his sacrifice for man, his death that men might have eternal life, and lastly his resurrection and the saving of all humanity by his intercession before the throne of Ormuzd. See Hecathorn. While the cult of Mithras did not reach the philosophical heights attained by Zarathustra, its effect upon the civilization of the Western world was far-reaching, for at one time nearly all Europe was converted to its doctrines. Rome, in her intercourse with other nations, inoculated them with her religious principles, and many later institutions have exhibited Mithraic culture. The reference to the lion and the grip of the lion's paw in the Master Mason's degree have a strong Mithraic tinge and may easily have originated from this cult. A ladder of seven rungs appears in the Mithraic initiation. Faber is of the opinion that this ladder was originally a pyramid of seven steps. It is possible that the Masonic ladder with seven rungs had its origin in this Mithraic symbol. Women were never permitted to enter the Mithraic order, but children of the male sex were initiates long before they reached maturity. The refusal to permit women to join the Masonic order may be based on the esoteric reason given in the secret instructions of the Mithraics. 
This cult is another example of those secret societies who le- whose legends are largely symbolic representations of the sun and his journey through the houses of the heavens. Mithras, rising from a stone, is merely the sun rising over the horizon, or, as the ancients supposed, out of the horizon at the vernal equinox. John O'Neill disputes the theory that Mithras was intended as a solar deity. In the Night of the Gods, he writes, The Avestan Mithra, the Azada of Light, has ten thousand eyes, high with full knowledge, Parathavidiana, strong, sleepless, and ever awake, Jagavaragam, the supreme god Ahura Mazda also has one eye, or else it is said that with his eyes, the sun, moon, and stars, he sees everything. The theory that Mithra was originally a title of the supreme heaven's god, putting the sun out of court, is the only one that answers all requirements. It will be evident that here we have origins in abundance for the Freemason's eye and its nuquam dormino. The reader must not confuse the Persian Mithra with the Vedic Mitra. According to Alexander Wilder, the Mithraic rites superseded the mysteries of Bacchus and became the foundation of the Gnostic system, for which many centuries prevailed in Asia, Egypt, and even the remote West. The Ancient Mysteries and Secret Societies, Part 2 The entire history of Christian and pagan Gnosticism is shrouded in the deepest mystery and obscurity. For while the Gnostics were undoubtedly prolific writers, little of their literature has survived. They brought down upon themselves the animosity of the early Christian church. And when this institution reached its position of world power, it destroyed all available records of the Gnostic cultus. The name Gnostic means wisdom or knowledge and is derived from the Greek gnosis. The members of the order claimed to be familiar with the secret doctrines of early Christianity. They interpreted the Christian mysteries according to pagan symbolism, their secret information and philosophical tenets. They concealed from the profane and taught to a small group of only especially initiated persons. Simon Magus, the magician of New Testament fame, is often supposed to have been the founder of Gnosticism. If this is true, the sect was formed during the century after Christ and is probably the first of many branches which have sprung from the main trunk of Christianity. Everything with which the enthusiasts of the early Christian church might not agree they declared to be inspired by the devil. That Simon Magus had mysterious and supernatural powers is conceded even by his enemies but they maintain that these powers were lent to him by the infernal spirits and furies, which they asserted were his ever-present companions. Undoubtedly, the most interesting legend concerning Simon is that which tells of his theosophic contest with the Apostle Peter, while the two were promulgating their differing doctrines in Rome. According to the story that the Church Fathers have preserved, Simon was to prove his spiritual superiority by ascending to heaven in a chariot of fire. He was actually picked up and carried many feet into the air by invisible powers. When St. Peter saw this, he cried out in a loud voice, ordering the demons, spirits of the air, to release their hold upon the magician. 
The evil spirits, when so ordered by the great saint, were forced to obey. Simon fell a great distance and was killed, which decisively proved the superiority of the Christian powers. This story is undoubtedly manufactured out of whole cloth, as it is only one out of many accounts concerning his death, few of which agree. As more and more evidence is being amassed to the effect that St. Peter was never in Rome, its last possible vestige of authenticity is rapidly being dissipated. That Simon was a philosopher there is no doubt, for wherever his exact words are preserved, his synthetic and transcending thoughts are beautifully expressed. The principles of Gnosticism are well described in the following verbatim statement by him, supposed to have been preserved by Hippolytus. To you, therefore, I say what I say and write what I write. And the writing is this, of the universal aeons, periods, planes, or cycles of creative and created life in substance and space, celestial creatures. There are two shoots, without beginning or end, springing from one root, which is the power invisible, inapprehensible, silence, pythos. Of these shoots, one is manifested from above, which is the great power, the universal mind, ordering all things male, and the other is manifested from below, the great thought, female, producing all things. Hence, pairing with each other, they unite and manifest the middle distance, incomprehensible error, without beginning or end. In this is the Father who sustains all things and nourishes these things which have a beginning and end. See Simon Magus by G.R.S. Mead. By this we are to understand that manifestation is the result of a positive and negative principle, one acting upon the other, and it takes place in the middle plane, or point of equilibrium, called the pleroma. This pleroma is a peculiar substance produced out of the blending of the spiritual and material aeons. Out of the pleroma was individualized the demiurgus, the immortal mortal, to whom we are responsible for our physical existence and the suffering we must go through in connection with it. In the Gnostic system, three pairs of opposites, called syzygies, emanated from the Eternal One. These, with himself, make the total of seven. The six aeons, three pairs, living, divine principles, were described by Simon in the Philosophumina in the following manner. The first two were mind, nous, and thought, epinoia. Then came voice, phone, and its opposite, name, omina. And lastly, reason, logismos, and reflection, enthumesis. From these primordial six, united with eternal flame, came forth the aeons, angels, who formed the lower worlds through the direction of the demiurges. See the works of H. P. Blavatsky. How this first Gnosticism of Simon Magus and Menander, his disciple, was amplified and frequently distorted by later adherence to the cult must now be considered. The school of Gnosticism was divided into two major parts, commonly called the Syrian cult and the Alexandrian cult. These schools agreed in essentials, but the latter division was more inclined to be pantheistic, while the former was dualistic. While the Syrian cult was largely Simonian, 
The Alexandrian school was the outgrowth of the philosophic deductions of a clever Egyptian Christian, Basilides by name, who claimed to have received his instructions from the Apostle Matthew. Like Simon Magus, he was an emanationist with Neoplatonic inclinations. In fact, the entire Gnostic mystery is based upon the hypothesis of emanations as being the logical connection between the irreconcilable opposites, absolute spirit and absolute substance, which the Gnostics believe to have been coexistent in eternity. Some assert that Basilides was the true founder of Gnosticism, but there is much evidence to the effect that Simon Magus laid down his fundamental principles in the preceding century. The Alexandrian Basilides inculcated Egyptian Hermeticism, Oriental Occultism, Chaldean Astrology, and Persian Philosophy in his followers, and in his doctrines sought to unite schools of early Christianity with the ancient pagan mysteries. To him is attributed the formulation of that peculiar concept of the deity which carries the name of Abraxas. In discussing the original meaning of this word, Godfrey Higgins, in his Celtic Druids, has demonstrated that the numerological powers of the letters forming the word Abraxas, when added together, result in the sum of 365. The same author also notes that the name Mithras, when treated in a similar manner, has the same numerical value. Basilides caught that the powers of the universe were divided into 365 aeons, or spiritual cycles, and that the sum of all these together was the Supreme Father, and to him he gave the Kabbalistic appellation Abraxas, as being symbolical, numerologically, of his divine powers, attributes, and emanations. Abraxas is usually symbolized as a composite creature, with the body of a human being and the head of a rooster, and with each of his legs ending in a serpent. C.W. King, in his Gnostics and the Remains, gives the following concise description of the Gnostic philosophy of Basilides, quoting from the writings of the early Christian bishop and martyr St. Irenaeus. He asserted that God, the uncreated, eternal Father, had first brought forth nous, or mind, this the logos, word, this again phronesis, intelligence, from phronesis sprung Sophia, wisdom, and dynamis, strength. In describing Abraxas, C.W. King says, Bellarmine considers the composite image, inscribed with the actual name Abraxas, to be a Gnostic pantheos, representing the supreme being with the five emanations marked out by appropriate symbols. From the human body, the usual form assigned to the deity, spring the two supporters, Nous and Logos, expressed in the serpents, symbols of the inner senses, and the quickening understanding, on which account the Greeks had made the serpent the attribute of Pallas. His head, that of a cock, represents Phronesis, that bird being the emblem of foresight and vigilance. His two arms hold the symbols of Sophia and Dynamis, the shield of wisdom and the whip of power. The Gnostics were divided in their opinions concerning the Demiurgus, or creator of the lower worlds. He established the terrestrial universe with the aid of six suns, or emanations, possibly the planetary angels, 
which he formed out of and yet within himself. As stated before, the Demiurgus was individualized as the lowest creation out of the substance called Pleroma. One group of Gnostics was of the opinion that the Demiurgus was the cause of all misery and was an evil creature, who by building this lower world had separated the souls of men from truth by encasing them in mortal vehicles. The other sect viewed the Demiurgus as being divinely inspired and merely fulfilling the dictates of the Invisible Lord. Some Gnostics were of the opinion that the Jewish god Jehovah was the Demiurgus. This concept, under a slightly different name, apparently influenced medieval Rosicrucianism, which viewed Jehovah as the lord of the material universe rather than as the supreme deity. Mythology abounds with the stories of gods who partook of both celestial and terrestrial natures. Odin of Scandinavia is a good example of a deity subject to mortality, bowing before the laws of nature and yet being, in certain sense at least, a supreme deity. The Gnostic viewpoint concerning the Christ is well worthy of consideration. This order claimed to be the only sect to have actual pictures of the divine Syrian. While these were, in all probability, idealistic conceptions of the Savior based upon existing sculptures and paintings of the pagan sun gods, they were all Christianity had. To the Gnostics, the Christ was the personification of Nous, the divine mind, and emanated from the higher spiritual aeons. He descended into the body of Jesus at the baptism and left it again before the crucifixion. The Gnostics declared that the Christ was not crucified, as this divine noose could not suffer death, but that Simon, the Cyrenian, offered his life instead, and that the noose, by means of its power, caused Simon to resemble Jesus. Irenaeus makes the following statement concerning the cosmic sacrifice of the Christ. When the uncreated, unnamed father saw the corruption of mankind, he sent his firstborn noose into the world, in the form of Christ, for the redemption of all who believe in him, out of the power of those who have fabricated the world, the Demiurgus and his six sons, the planetary genii. He appeared amongst men as the man Jesus and wrought miracles. See kings, Gnostics, and the remains. The Gnostics divided humanity into three parts, those who as savages worshipped only the visible nature, those who, like the Jews, worshipped the Demiurges, and lastly themselves or others of a similar cult, including certain sects of Christians, who worshipped Nous, Christ, and the true spiritual light of the higher aeons. After the death of Basilides, Valentinus became the leading inspiration of Gnostic movement. He still further complicated the system of Gnostic philosophy by adding infinitely to the details. He increased the number of emanations from the Great One, the Abyss, to fifteen pairs and also laid much emphasis on the Virgin Sophia, or Wisdom. In the books of the Savior, parts of which are commonly known as the Pistis Sophia, may be found much material concerning this strange doctrine of eons and their strange inhabitants. James Freeman Clark, in speaking of the doctrines of the Gnostics, says, These doctrines, strange as they seem to us, had a wide influence in the Christian Church. Many of the theories of the ancient Gnostics, especially those concerning scientific subjects, 
have been substantiated by modern research. Several sects branched off from the main stem of Gnosticism, such as the Valentinians, the Ophites, serpent worshippers, and the Adamites. After the 3rd century, their power waned, and the Gnostics practically vanished from the philosophic world. An effort was made during the Middle Ages to resurrect the principles of Gnosticism, but owing to the destruction of the records, the material necessary was not available. Even today, there are evidences of Gnostic philosophy in the modern world, but they bear other names and their true origin is not suspected. Many of the Gnostic concepts have actually been incorporated into the dogmas of the Christian Church, and our newer interpretations of Christianity are often along the lines of Gnostic emanationism. The Mysteries of Asar Hapi The identity of the Greco-Egyptian Serapis, known to the Greeks as Serapis and the Egyptians as Asar Hapi, is shrouded by an impenetrable veil of mystery. While this deity was a familiar figure among the symbols of the secret Egyptian initiatory rites, his arcane nature was revealed only to those who had fulfilled the requirements of the Serapic cultus. Therefore, in all probability, excepting the initiated priests, the Egyptians themselves were ignorant of his true character. So far as known, there exists no authentic account of the rites of Serapis but an analysis of the deity and his accompanying symbols reveals their salient points. In an oracle delivered to the king of Cyprus, Serapis described himself thus, A god I am such as I show to thee. The starry heavens are my head, my trunk the sea. Earth forms my feet, mine ears the air supplies. The sun far darting, brilliant rays mine eyes. Several unsatisfactory attempts have been made to etymologize the word Serapis. Godfrey Higgins notes that Soros was the name given by the Egyptians to a stone coffin, and Apis was Osiris incarnate in the sacred bull. These two words combined results in Soroapis or Sorapis, the tomb of the bull. But it is improbable that the Egyptians would worship a coffin in the form of a man. Several ancient authors, including Macrobius, have affirmed that Serapis was a name for the sun, because his image so often had a halo of light around its head. In his Oration Upon the Sovereign Sun, Julian speaks of the deity in these words, One Jove, one Pluto, one sun is Serapis. In Hebrew, Serapis is seraph, meaning to blaze out, or to blaze up. For this reason, the Jews designated one of their hierarchies of spiritual beings, Seraphim. The most common theory, however, regarding the origin of the name Serapis is that which traces its derivation from the compound Osiris Apis. At one time, the Egyptians believed that the dead were absorbed into the nature of Osiris, the god of the dead. While marked similarity exists between Osiris Apis and Serapis, the theory advanced by Egyptologists that Serapis is merely a name given to the dead Apis, or sacred bull of Egypt, is untenable in view of the transcendent wisdom possessed by the Egyptian priestcraft, who in all probability used the god to symbolize the soul of the world, Anima Mundi. 
The material body of nature was called Apis. The soul, which escaped from the body at death, but was enmeshed with the form during physical life, was designated Serapis. C.W. King believes Serapis to be a deity of Brahmanic extraction, his name being the Grecianized form of Serada, or Shripa, two titles ascribed to Yama, the Hindu god of death. This appears reasonable, especially since there is a legend to the effect that Serapis, in the form of a bull, was driven by Bacchus from India to Egypt. The priority of the Hindu mysteries would further substantiate such a theory. Among other meanings suggested for the word Serapis are the sacred bull, the sun in Taurus, the soul of Osiris, the sacred serpent, and the retiring of the bull. This last appellation has reference to the ceremony of drowning the sacred Apis in the waters of the Nile every 25 years. There is considerable evidence that the famous statue of Serapis in the Serapium at Alexandria was originally worshipped under another name of Sinope, from which it was brought to Alexandria. There is also a legend which tells that Serapis was a very early king of the Egyptians to whom they owed the foundation of their philosophical and scientific power. After his death, the king was elevated to the estate of a god. Philarchus declared that the word Serapis means the power that disposed the universe into its present beautiful order. In his Isis and Osiris, Plutarch gives the following account of the origin of the magnificent statue of Serapis which stood at the Serapium in Alexandria. While he was pharaoh of Egypt, Ptolemy Soter had a strange dream in which he beheld a tremendous statue, which came to life and ordered the pharaoh to bring it to Alexandria with all possible speed. Ptolemy Soter not knowing the whereabouts of the statue, was sorely perplexed as to how he could discover it. While the pharaoh was relating his dream, a great traveler by the name of Sosipius came forward, declared that he had seen such an image at Sinope. The pharaoh immediately dispatched Sotiles and Dionysius to negotiate for the removal of the figure to Alexandria. Three years elapsed before the image was finally obtained, the representatives of the pharaoh finally stealing it and concealing it the theft by spreading a story that the statue had come to life and walking down the street, leading from its temple, had boarded the ship prepared for its transportation to Alexandria. Upon its arrival in Egypt, the figure had brought into the presence of the Egyptian initiates, the Imulpid, Timotheus, and the Manetho, the Sebenite, who immediately pronounced it to be Serapis. The priests then declared that it was the equivalent to Pluto. This was a masterly stroke, for in Serapis, the Greeks and Egyptians found a deity in common, and thus religious unity was consummated between two nations. Several figures of Serapis that stood in this various temples in Egypt and Rome have been described by early authors. Nearly all of these showed Grecian rather than Egyptian influence. In some, the body of the god was encircled by the coils of a great serpent. Others showed him as a composite of Osiris and Apis. A description of the god that in all probability is reasonably accurate is that which represents him as a tall, powerful figure 
conveying the twofold impression of manly strength and womanly grace. His face portrayed a deep, pensive mood, the expression inclining towards sadness. His hair was long and arranged in a somewhat feminine manner, resting in curls upon his breast and shoulders. The face, save for its heavy beard, was also decidedly feminine. The figure of Serapis was usually robed from head to foot in heavy draperies, believed by initiates to conceal the fact that his body was androgynous. Various substances were used in making the statues of Serapis. Some undoubtedly were carved from stone or marble by skilled craftsmen. Others may have been cast from base or precious metals. One colossus of Serapis was composed of plates of various metals fitted together. An elaborate sacred to Serapis stood a 13-foot statue of him reputed to have been made from a single emerald. Modern writers discussing this image state that it was made of green glass poured into a mold. According to the Egyptians, however, it withstood all the tests of an actual emerald. Clement of Alexandria describes a figure of Serapis compounded from the following elements. First, filings of gold, silver, lead, and tin. Second, all manner of Egyptian stones, including sapphires, hematites, emeralds, and topazes. All these being ground down and mixed together with the coloring matter left from the funeral of Osiris and Apis. The result was a rare and curious figure, indigo in color, and some of the statues of Serapis must have been formed of extremely hard substances. For when a Christian soldier carrying out the edict of Theodosius struck the Alexandrian Serapis with his axe, that instrument was shattered into fragments and sparks flew from it. It is also quite probable that Serapis was worshipped in the form of a serpent, in common with many of the higher deities of the Egyptian and Greek pantheons. Serapis was called Theon Heptagrammaton, or the god with the name of seven letters. The name Serapis, like Abraxas and Mithras, contains seven letters. In their hymns to Serapis, the priest chanted the seven vowels. Occasionally, Serapis is depicted with horns or a coronet of seven rays. These evidently represented the seven divine intelligences manifesting through the solar light. The Encyclopedia Britannica notes that the earliest authentic mention of Serapis is in connection with the death of Alexander. Such was the prestige of Serapis that he alone of the gods was consulted in behalf of the dying king. The Egyptian secret school of philosophy was divided into the lesser and the greater mysteries, the former being sacred to Isis and the latter to Serapis and Osiris. Wilkinson is of the opinion that only the priests were permitted to enter the greater mysteries. Even the heir to the throne was not eligible until he had been crowned pharaoh when by virtue of his kingly office, he automatically became a priest and the temporal head of the state religion. See Wilkinson's Manners and Customs of the Egyptians. A limited number were admitted into the greater mysteries. These preserved their secrets inviolate. Much of the information concerning the rituals of the higher degrees of the Egyptian mysteries has been gleaned from an examination of the chambers and passageways in which the initiations were given. Under the temple of Serapis, destroyed by Theodosius, 
were found strange mechanical contrivances constructed by the priests in the subterranean crypts and caverns where the nocturnal initiatory rites were celebrated. These machines indicate the severe tests of moral and physical courage undergone by the candidates. After passing through these torturous ways, the neophytes who survived the ordeals were ushered into the presence of Serapis, a noble and awe-inspiring figure illumined by unseen lights. Labyrinths were also a striking feature in connection with the rice of Serapis, and E.A. Wallace Budge, in his Gods of the Egyptians, depicts Serapis, minotaur-like, with the body of a man and the head of a bull. Labyrinths were symbolic of the involvements and illusions of the lower world, through which wanders the soul of man in its search for truth. In the labyrinth dwells the lower animal man with the head of a bull, who seeks to destroy the soul entangled in the maze of worldly ignorance. In this relation, Serapis becomes the trier, or adversary, who tests the souls of those seeking union with the immortals. The maze was also doubtless used to represent the solar system, the bull man representing the sun dwelling in the mystic maze of its planets, moons, and asteroids. The Gnostic mysteries were acquainted with the arcane meaning of Serapis, and through the medium of Gnosticism, this god became inextricably associated with early Christianity. In fact, the emperor Hadrian, while traveling in Egypt in AD 24, declared in a letter to Servianus that the worshippers of Serapis were Christians and that the bishops of the church also worshipped at his shrine. He even declared that the patriarch himself, when in Egypt, was forced to adore Serapis as well as Christ. See Parsons' New Light on the Great Pyramid. The little suspected importance of Serapis as a prototype of Christ can be best appreciated after a consideration of the following extract from C.W. King's Gnostics and Their Remains. There can be no doubt that the head of Serapis, marked as the face is by a grave and pensive majesty, supplied the first idea for the conventional portraits of the Savior. The Jewish prejudices of the first converts were so powerful that we may be sure no attempt was made to depict his countenance until some generations after all that had beheld it on earth had passed away. Serapis gradually usurped the positions previously occupied by the other Egyptian and Greek gods, and became the supreme deity of both religions. His power continued until the 4th century of the Christian era. In AD 385, Theodosius, that would-be exterminator of pagan philosophy, issued his memorable edict, Diaidolo Serapidus Direndo. When the Christian soldiers, in obedience to this order, entered the Serapium at Alexandria to destroy the image of Serapis, which had stood there for centuries, so great was their veneration for the god that they dared not touch the image lest the ground should open up at their feet and engulf them. At length, overcoming their fear, they demolished the statue, sacking the building, and finally, as a fitting climax to their offense, burned the magnificent library which was housed within the lofty apartments of the Serapium. 
Several writers have recorded the remarkable fact that Christian symbols were found in the ruined foundations of this pagan temple. Socrates, a church historian of the 5th century, declared that after the pious Christians had raised the Serapium at Alexandria and scattered the demons who dwelt there under the guise of gods, beneath the foundations was found the monogram of Christ. Two quotations will further establish the relationship existing between the mysteries of Serapis and those of other ancient peoples. The first is from Richard Payne Knight's Symbolic Language of Ancient Art and Mythology. Hence Varro says that Colum and Terra, that is, universal mind and productive body in Latin, were the great gods of the Samothracian mysteries and the same as the Serapis and Isis of the latter Egyptians. The Tautos and Ashtart of the Phoenicians, and the Saturn and Ops of the Latins. The second quotation is from Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. The, says Martinius Capella in his Hymn to the Sun, dwellers on the Nile adore as Serapis, and Memphis worships as Osiris. In the sacred rites of Persia, thou art Mithras. In Phrygia, Atis, and Libya, bows down to thee as Ammon, and Phoenician, Byblos as Adonis. Thus the whole world adores thee under different names. The date of the founding of the Odinic Mysteries is uncertain, some writers declaring that they were established in the first century before Christ, others the first century after Christ. Robert McCoy, 33rd degree, gives the following description of their origin. It appears from the Northern Chronicles that in the first century of the Christian era, Sigi, the chief of the Azur, in the Asiatic tribe, emigrated from the Caspian Sea and the Caucasus into Northern Europe. He directed his course northwesterly from the Black Sea to Russia, over which, according to tradition, he placed one of his sons as a ruler, as he is said to have done over the Saxons and the Franks. He then advanced through Cimbria to Denmark, which acknowledged his fifth son, Skjold, as its sovereign, and passed over to Sweden, where Gilf, who did homage to the wonderful stranger and was initiated into his mysteries, then ruled. He soon made himself master here, built Sigtuna as the capital of his empire, and promulgated a new code of laws and established the sacred mysteries. He himself assumed the name of Odin, founded the priesthood of the twelve Drodars, Druids, who conducted the secret worship and the administration of justice, and as prophets revealed the future. The secret rites of these mysteries celebrated the death of Baldur, the beautiful and lovely, and represented the grief of gods and men at his death, and his restoration to life. General History of Freemasonry After his death, the historical Odin was apothesized, his identity being merged into that of mythological Odin, god of wisdom, whose cult he had promulgated. Odinism then supplanted the worship of Thor the Thunderer, the supreme deity of the ancient Scandinavian pantheon. The mound where, according to legend, King Odin was buried is still to be seen near the site of his great temple at Uppsala. The twelve Drodars, 
who presided over the Odinic mysteries, evidently personified the twelve holy and ineffable names of Odin. The rituals of the Odinic mysteries were very similar to those of the Greeks, Persians, and Brahmins, after which they were patterned. The Drotars, who symbolized the signs of the Zodiac, were the custodians of the arts and sciences, which they revealed to those who passed successfully the ordeals of initiation. Like many other pagan cults, the Odinic mysteries as an institution were destroyed by Christianity, but the underlying cause of their fall was the corruption of the priesthood. Mythology is nearly always the ritual and the symbolism of a mystery school. Briefly stated, the sacred drama which formed the basis of the Odinic mysteries was as follows. The supreme, invisible creator of all things was called All-Father. His regent in nature was Odin, the one-eyed god. Like Quetzalcoatl, Odin was elevated to the dignity of the supreme deity. According to the Drodars, the universe was fashioned from the body of Ymir, the hoarfrost giant. Ymir was formed from the clouds of mist that rose from Ginnungagap, the great cleft in chaos into which the primordial frost giants and flame giants had hurtled snow and fire. The three gods, Odin, Vili, and Ve, slew Ymir, and from him formed the world. From Ymir's various members, the different parts of nature were fashioned. After Odin had established order, he caused a wonderful palace called Asgard to be built on the top of a mountain. And here the twelve Azer, gods, dwelt together, far above the limitations of mortal men. On this mountain also was Valhalla, the place of the slain, where those who had heroically died fought and feasted day after day. Each night their wounds were healed, and the boar whose flesh they ate renewed itself as rapidly as it was consumed. Baldur the Beautiful, the Scandinavian Christ, was the beloved son of Odin. Baldur was not warlike. His kindly and beautiful spirit brought peace and joy to the hearts of the gods, and they all loved him save one. As Jesus had a Judas among his twelve disciples, so one of the twelve gods was false, Loki, the personification of evil. Loki caused Hotur, the blind god of fate, to shoot Baldur with a mistletoe arrow. With the death of Baldur, light and joy vanished from the lives of the other deities. Heartbroken, the gods gathered to find a method whereby they could resurrect this spirit of internal life and youth. The result was the establishment of the mysteries. The Odinic mysteries were given in underground crypts or caves, the chambers nine in number, representing the nine worlds of the mysteries. The candidate seeking admission was assigned to the task of raising Baldur from the dead. Although he did not realize it, he himself played the part of Baldur. He called himself a wanderer. The caverns through which he passed were symbolic of the worlds and spheres of nature. The priests who initiated him were emblematic of the sun, the moon, and the stars. The three supreme initiators, the sublime, the equal to the sublime, and the highest, were analogous to the worshipful master and the junior and senior wardens of a Masonic lodge. After wandering for hours through the intricate passageways, the candidate was ushered into the presence of a statue of Baldur the Beautiful, 
the prototype of all initiates into the mysteries. This figure stood in the center of a great apartment roofed with shields. In the midst of the chamber stood a plant with seven blossoms, emblematic of the planers. In this room, which symbolized the house of Esur, or wisdom, the neophyte took his oath of secrecy and pity upon the naked blade of a sword. He drank the sanctified mead from a bowl made of a human skull, and having passed successfully through the tortures and trials designed to divert him from the course of wisdom, he was finally permitted to unveil the mystery of Odin, the personification of wisdom. He was presented in the name of Baldur, with the sacred ring of the order, he was hailed as a man reborn, and it was said of him that he had died and had been raised again without passing through the gates of death. Richard Wagner's immortal composition, Der Ring des Nibelungen, is based upon the mystery rituals of the Odinic cult. While the great composer took many liberties with the original story, the Ring operas, declared to be the grandest tetralogy of music dramas the world possesses, have caught and preserved in a remarkable manner the majesty and power of the original sagas. Beginning with Das Rheingold, the action proceeds through Die Walker and Siegfried to an awe-inspiring climax in Goddardamung, the Twilight of the Gods. The Nine Worlds of the Odinic Mysteries The Nordic Mysteries were given in nine chambers or caverns, the candidate advancing through them in sequential order. These chambers of initiation represented the nine spheres into which the Droders divided the universe. Number one, Asgard, the heaven world of the gods. Number two, Alfheim, the world of the light and beautiful elves or spirits. Three, Niflheim, the world of cold and darkness, which is located in the north. Number four, Jutenheim, the world of the giants, which is located in the east. Number five, Midgard, the earth world of human beings, which is located in the midst or the middle place. Number six, Vanaheim, the world of the veins, which is located in the west. Number seven, Muspelsheim, the world of fire which is located in the south. Number eight, Svartalfaheim, the world of the dark and treacherous elves, which is under the earth. And number nine, Helheim, the world of cold and the abode of the dead, which is located at the very lowest point of the universe. It is to be understood that all of these worlds are invisible to the senses, except Midgard, the home of human creatures. But during the process of initiation, the soul of the candidate, liberated from its earthly sheath by the secret power of the priests, wanders amidst the inhabitants of these various spheres. There is undoubtedly a relationship between the nine worlds of the Scandinavians and the nine spheres, or planes, through which initiates of the Eleusinian mysteries passed in their ritual of regeneration. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.